welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, Cycling in Alignment listeners. I'm back. After some radio silence, I have returned with another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today's discussion is with Stefan Drake, founder of Lore Shoes and lead engineer Rob Horacek. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. But first, I have to apologize for being off the back for so long or out of the peloton. I'm sure all of you, or maybe most of you, have figured out why that is by now. If you pay attention to the socials, you will see that yesterday, that's July 15th, 2021, we released information about the new Team EF Coaching platform, which I have been a very large part of for the last four months. And while I've been honored to work on that project, and it's been very rewarding thus far, it's been a massive part of the reason why I haven't been able to keep up with the podcast. It's just been a lot of work and time and energy. And now we can see the fruits of that labor start to pay off as people begin to learn from the platform we have constructed. I'm pretty excited about that. It's a novel concept in the world of coaching, in my opinion. It's the first World Tour team to leverage their experience and hard lessons and bring them to people in a way that allows the riders to learn from all that they have learned. It's also a way for a JV to bring about a sustainable business model for a World Tour cycling team. If you know much about how the World Tour works, you'll understand pretty quickly that it's hard for a lot of World Tour teams to maintain funding and that that's not a very long-term model typically. It's quite difficult for teams to stay funded at that level. And so Jonathan's idea here is to enable the team to start to generate its own funds. There have been a few other teams that have tried this, opening their own online bike shops and doing some other things to raise money. And I don't think too many of them have had great success. So hopefully this is new groundbreaking idea. It's been a great privilege to be a part of it. And I'm super excited to see it take flight and begin to help people. I'll say that the coaching staff we have are absolute rock stars. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly encourage you to go to teamefcoaching.com and peruse the site. You'll get an idea for what's going on there and the amazing coaches that we have signed up. I'm going to be the director of that coaching program and I'll be in the sense coaching the coaches, which is a tremendous honor for me. I think that I'll be learning as much from them as they will be from me. I'm really looking forward to the collaborative energy we will have as a group and the problem solving that we can undertake together. We've got a lot of novel concepts in this program and I'm sure that people will get a lot out of it. So go forth and check it out. I've been hinting about this Lore One shoe project for quite a while now and I know many people are excited to hear about it. So Onward with the shoe, there are a few things I want to tell you about before I get us started with our conversation. I know you're excited to get into the nitty-gritty details about the shoe and all the amazing things that it will do for you. But first, I want to explain why I am doing this. Being part of this project was a huge honor for me and also sort of a serendipitous moment. I had designed various solutions to what I considered to be 
a chronic bike fitting problem, a shoe problem in the world of cycling. I really don't, there aren't a lot of products in the market that I'm very happy with. Uh, I think that all modern shoes to some degree are constrained by archaic design philosophies. Some try to break free from that more than others, and some take some elements of old, old school shoe design and actually properly maintain them. But all of them fall short, in my opinion, for most riders. That is to say, what we're looking for is a better solution to the problem. And right now, there is no tool to give us that solution. Well, Lore is the first tool that's going to do that. And so I couldn't be more excited about it. It was a bit like when I designed a bar very similar to the coefficient wave bar in my head. And then Rick Sutton came to me and said, hey, do you want to work with us on this new handlebar project? And he showed me the design and I immediately pretty much jumped up and down and did a backflip because it was as though Rick looked into the recesses of my mind and designed a bar that more or less answered the question that I had asked, which was, can we make a much better handlebar? Not only that, I had a design in my head. Well, Stefan has done the same thing with the lower shoe. It's a shoe that allows the foot to be its own optimal natural shape, but at the same time, without constraining the toes, without constraining the motion of the foot at all, but at the same time, capturing the momentum and energy of the athlete's force at the right moment and in the right way. How does the shoe accomplish this? It's based on a high resolution 3D scan of your foot, and it is the world's first 3D printed, fully custom carbon shoe. So get your mind wrapped around that for a second. It may seem simple, and it may seem obvious, but there's actually quite a bit of nuance in that statement. All shoes on the market right now are stock shoes, and what's the problem with a stock shoe? Well, it's kind of a trick question, but it's stock. Of course, there are custom shoes on the market, and all of those are based on plaster molds of your foot, and there are numerous problems with that model, and lots of reasons why it doesn't provide an optimal, we'll say, way to capture the natural energy of the foot. And for some hints on that, you can go back and listen to my podcast with Aaron Anderson of PTI Orthotics, which is quite technical, but fundamentally Aaron's philosophy is that you let the foot be the foot and interfere with it as little as possible. This is how he scans the foot. And this is a lot to do with how lore captures the energy of the foot. So, sorry I'm getting bogged down in details and that's what the pod is for. The important part is the code and what to do, how to use it, and what's happening. So... As of the recording of this podcast, we are going to drop on Tuesday, the 20th of July. On July 25th and 26th, there will be a sneak preview and access to the earliest build spots for the 2021 manufacturing run of Lore Shoes. This will be limited to 277 pair. So in this year, this calendar year, the remainder of 2021, there will only be 277 pair of lower shoes available, which means if you really want a pair, you better get in there quick because these are going to go like lightning. How do you get on this pre-order list, this founder email list? Go to the website, lore.cc. That's L-O-R-E dot C-C. Sign up for the founder's email list. When you do that, you are granted access to the exclusive preview and you get access to order the first run of Lore Shoes. 
This happens on the 25th and 26th of July. After that, on July 27th, the shoe will launch to the general public. So this is your chance to get in just because you're listening to my podcast. And I'm telling you that this is an exclusive discount. Stefan told me that this will be the only discount code ever offered on Lore Shoes. So you better get it while you can. What is the code? I'm going to tell you. It is Colby07. Use that code at checkout. That's Colby with a capital C, the number zero, the number seven at checkout to get $100 off of your pair of Lore Shoes. I don't know why they gave me a single seven. Apparently, I'm not a 007. I'm half of Roger Moore, which I'll totally take because James Bond, especially the Roger Moore one, was just super cool. So um, that's Colby07 at checkout with a capital C to get $100 off your pair of Lore shoes. And again, that website is lore.cc. Go forth and check it out. In case you're wondering, um, do I want to do this? I'm not quite convinced. Listen to the pod and then also understand that these shoes have a full money-back guarantee for 30 days. So if you get them and you decide they are not working for you, which I would be pretty surprised by, but anything's possible, sir, then you can request a full money-back guarantee. Send back your shoes and we will make it right. That's the deal. So you can purchase with confidence and understand that this is going to be an amazing game-changing product. I'm telling you, these shoes are gonna be unlike anything you've ever ridden in for multiple reasons. To understand why that is, I'm gonna release you into the conversation with Stefan and Rob. Please enjoy. Welcome listeners to Cycling in Alignment. We're here for another exciting episode. I've been waiting for a while to uncork this one. You guys are in for a treat, but I'm going to be transparent. This is basically a commercial, but not in a regular annoying buy an ab buster sense or an abdominalizer or a late night infomercial sense. This is a product that I have been involved in and have worked with the guys who create this product for a long time. And they're here to tell you all about it and why it is going to be super amazingly badass. So what am I going on about? I'm talking about the Lore One shoe. Lore is the company and Lore One is the model name. And I'm here with the CEO and founder of the company, Stefan Drake, and the lead engineer, Rob Horacek. And they're gonna tell us all about the design of the shoe and why it's a very different way to look at cycling footwear, what's unique about it. We're gonna get into their background and then we're gonna give you guys some exciting tidbits to walk away from. And activate all your imaginations until you see it in person. So Stefan, Rob, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. it's an cool. honor to be here. Cool. Right on. Yeah, it's been super fun to work with you guys on this project and yeah. I'm sure you are basically dying to get it into the real world and production after all the hard work you guys have put in. Um, you're unturning a lot of stones, so we'll definitely want to unpack all the, the great lengths you're going to to grow this project and bring it into fruition and, and well, unturn all the stones, look at all the cool things uh, that we can do with cycling shoes and thinking about it from a new perspective. But um, first, before we start with all the techie bits, let's just tell us, give us some context. Like, yeah. who are you guys? How'd you come to this path? What, what, what's your journey? Yeah. Should I start, Rob? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, from, from my side, uh, 
Yeah, I'm a I'm a skier, uh, really, as as my background, and um, was a pro skier, designed skis, had a founded a ski company that I ran for many years, and was very into uh, innovation and and driving new products and skiing. Mm -hmm. And uh, from from a cycling was always a, a off season uh, sport for me, but one that I really loved, mountain biking. And, um, you know, through the course of, uh, of designing ski products, I was, you know, literally doing, you know, hundreds of thousands of turns with kind of, a, a, in a mode of self-awareness, trying to figure out like how to transfer energy, uh, most efficiently and most directly mm -hmm. and comfortably from body to skis to mountain. And so, you know, naturally with that kind of mindset, if that's your, your gig, your job, um, cycling in the, in the off season, uh, you know, kind of started approaching with that same perspective. Mm -hmm. And, and we realized that, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely something to be done there, uh, in terms of how a bike is pedaled and, and that the shoe is this kind of like overlooked, just critical transmission point where all your training, your spirit, your passion, your power, uh, gets moved from your body to the bicycle. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and yeah, uh, so, so started thinking about that problem and, uh, yeah, when, you know, was, had a career change here over the last couple of years and, and diving into a new project here with Rob, um, yeah, we, uh, we wanted to attack the cycling shoe. So that's, that's kind of the, the basic background. So you were talking Alpine skiing, right? Not, not cross country, right? You're talking yep, about thousands yep. of turns. Yep. Yep. So you're a pro. Where are you from originally? Uh, so I grew up in New York City. Uh, okay. Way back when, which is not the, uh, you know, the most common place for skiers to come through. But but actually, mm. a lot of like in that industry, there's been a few folks like really passionate folks that have come from New York simply. I think because when you grow up in a place like that, it's uh, you know you're always dreaming and fantasizing of of the other, and and so it like builds a lot of passion into the mountains and. Mm -hmm. into that sport so at a very early age i was like obsessed with skiing in mountains and mm -hmm. that kind of drove my life story so originally there and then i've lived out west uh colorado utah okay um and and yeah i spent a lot of my life traveling around the world basically searching for snow and the perfect turn so uh -huh. yeah nice that's and so as a alpine skier you really you're thinking about how the ski carves and drives into the snow you're thinking about how the edge has to engage to control speed and also direct the athlete down the mountain so a, so much of that focus is is oriented in the fine-tuning of the relationship of the foot to the boot and the boot to the ski in terms of wedging and placement and angulation and yeah. all those pieces right that's totally and and yeah skiing i would say you know is is a much more complex and uh, motion environment than say cycling, right? Where you're, mm -hmm. you're in a, you're in a pretty controlled, repetitive, uh, motion. Whereas in skiing, you know, you're, it's way more rotational. Um, the, the terrain, the snow, uh, is always changing. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, that's, you're, you're basically really tuning in to, to a lot of, uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of this human motion and translating that into precision into the ski. Okay. And, and so it's the, the thinking is, is, is quite similar and, and also the biomechanics are quite similar to mm -hmm. cycling. And so there's, there's kind of a natural, 
uh, translation and skiing in those motions are much more exaggerated and gross and in cycling they're uh, they're very similar but much more subtle and repetitive and controlled so maybe more yeah more refined you might argue because they're more controlled right yeah. yeah yeah that's interesting so you could almost argue that a lot of cycling movement or power is a subset you might say of skiing in a way is that yeah and accurate I, and I think the 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 father or the mother of, of all of it is is just is natural locomotion and gait right like that's that translates into skiing it translates into cycling and mm -hmm. so so uh yeah really the the project that we're we're about here is is taking a lot of those kind of ubiquitous natural human moment uh, motions that we're designed to do and translating them into these sports to garner the maximum amount of efficiency and power transfer right so, but they they all share the you know there's rotation in walking, there's rotation in cycling, there's rotation in skiing, and it's just extracting um, yeah a lot of this project or, or any product development is is really just again about about uh, noticing those subtleties and mm -hmm. um, and harnessing them in mm -hmm. the most efficient way to you know with the net result being better balance, more power, more power transfer. Right. So, right. Yeah. And. Just to foreshadow a bit before I uh, yeah, ask you, Rob. Off. Yeah, we're going <laughs> off. But but when you say harnessing, we're talking about harnessing rotation, right? Would you agree that there's a really fine line and a delicate balance between containing and allowing, but actualizing, right? I mean, isn't that the essence of what we're talking about? It's like the human foot will, when you put force, you make force at the hip, and you drive. It goes through the upper leg, through the lower leg, you know, via the knee, via the ankle. And it drives into the foot ultimately whether you're trying to put power into a ski to control direction or uh reduce force or increase velocity whatever or reduce velocity or increase velocity or you're trying to increase the velocity and force going into a pedal it's that balance of controlling rotation or we'll say actualizing allowing some rotation rotation of the lower leg because every time you mm -hmm. extend the hip and extend the knee we have these we have these subtle rotations that happen exactly. in the femur and in the tib, tib fib, right? Yep. And the ankle. Yep. So that will, uh, there's my foreshadow. I'll stop giving the plot spoilers, <laughs> but that's, that's what <laughs> a lot of this project centers around, right? Yeah. The, we'll, we'll get there. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Letting, right. letting the, uh, the human body move how it wants to move and harnessing the power as it does it. Great. Yeah. Perfect way to oh, yeah, we'll get say into that. it. Okay, yeah. cool. Rob, tell us about you. Yeah. Where are you from? What's your What's your deal? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so from Massachusetts, I uh, went to school in Boston uh, for mechanical engineering, so engineering background. Mm -hmm. um, ended up getting into the sports industry coming out of college. So for the last 17 years or so, I've uh, been working on sports equipment, basically. Um, okay. So Black Diamond, Nike, Puma, Cleveland Golf, um, mm -hmm. working with pros and, you know, all levels. Um, so, you know, coming out with revolutionary um equipment to to make sports more enjoyable more successful um that kind of thing has, has uh been basically my career uh and so this this project is kind of the next uh chapter of uh you know finding a pretty interesting uh untapped mm -hmm. application uh, yep. with some pretty game-changing technology so yep yep awesome and how did you and stefan get hooked up on this project how did you guys meet and get connected were you friends first or yeah, we, we've worked on projects together before, is okay. how we met originally. Uh, introduced, um, friend to a friend, basically. We're both, uh, we've been in Utah for a long time, so I've been in Park City for about 12 years. Um, same same kind of story from the East Coast, mm -hmm. uh, but, I'm, you know, a lot of time out in the West now. Yeah. Um, so we, we've worked on projects together for a handful of years, and um, 
you know, I think I have a good, um, you know, connection there as far as Stefan is much more the kind of visionary. Um, so kind of all sides of, of you know, starting a brand and, and running that business, mm -hmm. uh, but also kind of visionary and saying, hey, there's here's a better way to do something here. And then, you know, I, I'm kind of the, the right hand man to actually make it work. So here's the here's the idea. Here's the vision. But mm -hmm. uh, we need to make it function. We need to make it you know mm -hmm. durable. We need to make it, um, you know, appealing. All these different things. Got to be able to attach a cleat to it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Walk into the coffee the shop. That's in the bolts. All the things. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Literally. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'll just say, yeah, Rob's like, uh, yeah, this super cool partnership, you know, compared to, um, you know, just contextually like across like a, a career of designing products. Like it's just, yeah, it's a real kind of honor to work with someone like this, like an engineer, but also one that with a very plastic, um, mind in, in the best way plastic meaning like, uh, just, yeah, very, uh, very like, uh, vision oriented and, and mm -hmm. like flexible to, uh, to, to really see like some complex stuff yeah. to, to, to its end, which is pretty rare i found. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, this guy did like Tiger Woods's golf clubs and stuff. And, awesome. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, okay. it's just super cool guy to work with on something cool. like this. Yeah. 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 Amazing. That's cool. So yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, in, in cycling, we have every sport attracts its sort of personality type. And in cycling, we have so many engineers. I talk about this quite a bit. It's like, what do you do? We have a lot of firemen, a lot of engineers who end up as cyclists. It's just a thing. Fire yeah. Fire. Yeah. Um, I, there's something about the, I don't know, the danger element, I guess, maybe. I'm not really sure what the connection is there, to be totally honest. It's just the personality type that falls into cycling. Yeah. I found, but so many engineers, and I'm painting in broad strokes here. I'm not trying to piss anyone off or whatever, but so many engineers are just they, their personalities are so rigid, right? It's exactly. a very, it's that type of discipline where you want to personalize or, or actualize that rigidity. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like no, no. you can accomplish a lot with a knife or with a hammer, right? But just with anything, when we skew too much short of one side or the other, then we get ourselves in trouble, right? It doesn't matter if we're talking about the carnivore diet or, you know, whatever, bike racing too much or sleeping too much, yeah, yeah. not sleeping enough you take it to its extreme and inevitably you run into problems. Right. So, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of a rare bird. That's cool. Cool. So, yeah. Uh, okay. So, well, maybe guys, I'll let you decide who wants to talk on this or maybe you both do, but I think the next pertinent question is give us the overview. Like what is the concept of the shoe? And I'd say probably for the, for the point of the audience, we might want to break it down. We can, we can tear down what normal shoes don't give us as a starting point perhaps, or maybe you want to start with what this project is, is embodying. What is this, what is a cycling shoe? What is the lore one about? Yeah. Maybe I'll start there and then maybe Colby, I mean, you, I'm, I a, like to bash shoes. Yeah. I'm, you're, you're, <laughs> that, that's how we got hooked up originally. I heard, right. you, I heard you bashing shoes for hours on end. So. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, so I thought it would be a natural, natural reach out, but yeah, this, uh, so the lore one is, is basically it's the world's first 3d printed carbon fiber shoe and it just so happens to be a cycling shoe which is a great application for something that's uh stiff and performance oriented and um and yeah it's fully custom so it's it's also very unique in that uh it's a shoe that's built only for your foot and it's the only way we make it um so uh and it's accomplished by scanning scanning your foot with a iphone 10 or newer and then, uh, yeah, on the, on the other end of that is, uh, 
continuous carbon fiber 3D printed exoskeleton of your foot, essentially, which also incorporates some pretty revolutionary, uh, in our opinion, approaches to biomechanics. So uh, to, to create a shoe that is not only custom um, and, and truly fits your foot, but does so in a, a very unique way and mm -hmm. performs in a very unique, unique way that, that, as we kind of alluded to earlier uh, in, the, uh, in the intro, that, yeah, just harnesses power uh, unlike any other shoe before. It's a full carbon monocoque, so you're getting, uh, we're, we're getting that rotational power and translating that through a, a rigid dorsal, a top side of your foot, whereas as most cycling shoes are, are soft. They have stiff soles, but mm -hmm. uh, soft uppers. So, right. Anything to add, Rob? That's yeah, it. just you know the the obviously the the 3D printing technology here that makes this possible. Um, you could only do this if it's exactly your foot. Obviously, rigid would be great, but right. if if it doesn't fit your foot perfectly, then that's why you need a soft upper. So. We're kind of going for the best of both worlds to get the custom fit, mm -hmm. which would be an improvement over obviously existing shoes, as well as uh, being able to harness that power that you haven't been able to before uh, when it wasn't your foot. Right, right. Okay, cool. So yeah, I definitely want to unpack how we're going to harness that power specifically, but before we get there, maybe Rob, you can tell us about the robotic technology that's involved in this, right? I mean, people are probably imagining like, okay, I get my iPhone, I scan my foot, I email you guys a file or it uploads or whatever to the app, and then this basically the the shoe is just printed like in a 3d printer right except with carbon i mean that's basically that simple right so i could probably buy a 3d printer myself and put it on my desk and it was big enough to spit out a shoe i mean what's the big deal why do i have to have you guys make one right so <laughs> yeah fair, fair enough and, exactly <laughs> and, and you know it's classic 3d prints have been used for a number of years and people are pretty familiar with them but they often think you can even, can't even use them as a kid's toy without them breaking or something. So right. uh, durability has been a thing. Um, they've been on the on the doorstep of production for a long time, but haven't quite realized the potential yet uh, yeah. in the market. And obviously materials and technologies are evolving uh, rapidly every year. And so there's a few technologies that are right at the cutting edge of, of being able to make this possible. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them is the continuous carbon fiber 3D printing. Um, there's a lot of detail we could go into. I could talk for hours about that. Um, but let's just say that if you had traditional carbon fiber techniques, um, you'd need a, you know, a mold of your foot, either you need tooling, which mm -hmm. would be, you know, one size fits all or one shoe for everybody. Right. And you couldn't get unique fit, or you would need to have a, a, a cast or mold of your foot. And there obviously are, you know, shoe companies who are doing that, who make a plaster mold of your foot and mm -hmm. then hand lay up carbon fiber sheets and ship mm -hmm. you your shoe a long time later. And uh, it's a quite messy, really archaic process. Yeah. Um, so what the 3D printing allows us to do is in, you know, a matter of hours instead of weeks is based on the CAD file, based on your scan, we can basically uh, wrap that in continuous carbon fiber. Um, the other nice thing about that is sheet carbon fiber um, you get uniform thickness everywhere, or it's quite intensive hand layups to, to you know, to change the reinforce exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, what the continuous uh, printing allows us to do is place the fiber exactly where we want. So we can basically say, here are the force vectors that are important. Here's where we need the strength. Here's where we need the stiffness. Here's where we don't need material. Let's mm -hmm. leave it out there. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, quite a bit of venting and, and you know, holes in the exoskeleton, um, partially to reduce weight, partially 
um, for ventilation, right. and partially because we don't need the material there. Um, so we can kind of put the material exactly where we want, which mm -hmm. opens up a lot of design freedom yeah. uh, to kind of optimize that, that structure. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. We were talking about that earlier. Like there's so many carbon shoes in the market that are sort of torn between this, they want to capture the foot and give it this rigid platform. Everyone's always about this rigidity and efficiency and lightness and stiffness. But of course that is directly juxtaposed or counteropposed to ventilation. And while cycling now is definitely a four season sport, I would argue that you want your primary shoes to be very well ventilated. And then you want to put a winter barrier around them during cool weather riding so that you can build a microclimate under that barrier. And that barrier there's still, is still breathable, but like having a shoe that doesn't breathe or is built out of materials that really aren't breathable. And this is pretty much all modern shoes are made from basically carbon and microfiber uppers. I mean, this is like breathability or ventilation are one of the last considerations in order of operations of a shoe. It's like first make the sole really stiff and cool looking and then add microfiber on top. Here goes my shoe bashing. I'm starting in, Go add on. microfiber on top <laughs> and then put some boas or buckles or laces on there, whatever. And then like, and then make it look really cool. Make it look cool is probably number two, honestly. And then, then, you know, cause form should always precede function. Right. And then add ventilation at the last, like, okay, now what's left, where can we drill some holes in it or add some mesh, but we don't like mesh because mesh involves stitching, which is expensive and compromises the integrity of the upper and doesn't look cool. And now everything has to be seamless. So we'll just put some little micro holes in it. That's no big deal. If like sand gets in your shoe, right? I mean, that's not annoying at all. So it's what I'm saying is ventilation is a total afterthought. So when you design a shoe, like you guys are doing, you have the opportunity to really increase performance, not only in how we're going to capture and utilize the power of the athlete, but also simply in a way to thermoregulate the foot, probably in new in a new capacity that's never been done before. Yeah, I, I would say like when we first got into this project and started meeting, um, yeah, cyclists and and good fitters, you know, like yourself, like that kept popping up, right? Like hot foot and ventilation were yeah. right there. So that's, yeah. you know, as you'll see in the shoe, it's like, I don't think you could get more ventilated really. It's yeah. It's, yeah. 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 <laughs> if, yeah it's if, if, if some people have uh, five drainage holes in the bottom, we've got 50. So it's right. Yeah, right. Just yeah. the nature of it. And, and, you know, we have the weather wrap. So if you, if we want, like you say, it's always it's a modular easy. system. Yeah. It's a modular system is always easy to, um, warm the foot up if we need to, for cold weather conditions, you know, rain, other kind of, uh, environmental conditions. Yep. We have a weather wrap that we can put on if we need to. Mm -hmm. Um, but 90% of the time, uh, we go with kind of more air conditioned mode. Right. Uh, and right. then just kind of uh, celebrate the, the exoskeleton, uh, holes and the breathability. Yeah. And, and as you said, the structure is the same on the top as it is the bottom. So you get those holes in the top, but also underfoot for yep. kind of 360, uh, and, and drainage. Yeah. I mean, the short term lower one shoe is just to take a cleat and strap it to some Swiss cheese and then stick your foot in the cheese. Right. That'd be almost the same thing with a little more rigidity, slightly more structural integrity <laughs> than, the, right. than, the, yeah, than the cheese. But so, <laughs> um, all right, cool. So if you guys will allow me for a moment, I'm going to set the platform and step on my soapbox for a minute again and just bash the living crap out of most shoes. Like I'm transforming into opinionated mode. Deal with it. People. <laughs> Modern cycling shoes are garbage for the most part, to be honest. And I'm going to paint very broad brushes. I'm going to be really cruel here and then I'll back out of it in a minute. But the fact is that cycling shoe design has basically barely changed in the last hundred years. Only it has evolved in a modern sense, but not in any meaningful sense. It's been more a sense that is very um, counterproductive. So what am I talking about? 
old school cycling shoes were a really stiff leather bottom. I don't know what they did to it to get the bottom piece really stiff. And then they made a leather top and that leather top, which wrapped around the top side of the foot, the entire, everything from pretty much the flat portion up, that portion was really soft, supple leather. So pretty simple formula, get your new shoes, ride them for two or 3000 K, especially in the winter and get rained on a lot. And the thing fits you like a glove. That's how it used to work. And this is old school technology for making a one size fits all solution work as many I've had many conversations with people about this concept of the shoe since you guys dropped the teaser on Velo News and some other sites and they asked me well like what's the thing all about I don't get it and my response is well it's pretty simple like what is the problem with every stock shoe and I kind of give them a couple seconds for dramatic effect I let them percolate <laughs> I don't say anything and most people figure it out right away a stock shoe is stock so let's break that down for just a second. Most shoe companies take some sort of data about a foot, probably some sort of scan or some sort of information that they have about the size, shape, volume, and geometry of a human foot. And they average it because they're trying to make a shoe that scales. And they have no choice but to average it because they want to build it to a bell curve. So certain companies talk about how they've got this last and that last, but it's all the same method. Basically, it's, we'll say, a scan of the human foot that's been averaged or smoothed. And maybe they have a thousand feet in their scanning system. Maybe they have 10,000 feet. It doesn't really matter. It's still a bell curve. Here's the problem. Build a shoe for an average man and it fits no man because no man is average. And I'm using man in the very generic sense here. I mean, you too, ladies. Build a shoe to fit the average person and you get, you get a shoe that fits really no one. That's why I constantly as a fitter, I come in and have people talking about how, oh, the heel cup doesn't quite fit me here, or I've got this pressure point there, or this bow is bothering me here, or I've got this bone spur growing out of my heel or the side of my foot, and my navicular is growing like a little horn on the side of my of the side of my foot because this shoe puts so much pressure on me here or there. I've got hot foot, which really, in most cases, hot foot is the shoe not stabilizing the foot correctly, and you get micro motions, which cause a sensation of friction under the skin, and we register that as hot foot but you also just get straight up swollen feet that don't fit in the shoe properly. And so you get numbness and pain and people register numbness on the bottom of their foot, which, but frequently it's from pressure in the upper, not conforming correctly to the metatarsal heads or leaving a gap between the first and fifth. And then people feel that sloppiness. So they over tighten the boas or over tighten the ratchets or the laces. So all these problems are really easily avoidable in, in this model, which is, we're going to create a custom shoe that is based on a scan, a three-dimensional computer scan of your foot. And when you said, Stefan, just now, iPhone 10 or higher, I had to laugh because on my desk, I have an eight. Oh, man. So clearly, if I'm going to help you guys out with some scans here and sell some people some shoes, I'm going to have to do the old upgrade. But anyway, we'll get to that in a moment. How do I disable face ID? So, dot uh, com. So <laughs> when we, <laughs> when this is me coming off the heels of listening to a Russell uh, Russell Brand interview with Vandana Shiva about how how much iPhones track you. I just had to drop that pearl in there for you guys. Go forth and check it out if you're interesting. If you haven't heard Russell Brand's podcast, get ready to have your, your head parts explode. Love that guy. So conventional shoes, back to the history. Yep. We went with leather uppers. That that probably kind of worked to some degree because when you have a conformable leather upper that conforms to your foot over time, it molds to your foot because of weather and wear and because it's basically it's animal skin that probably worked pretty well but then we decided to make everything better 
And I'm not saying we should all be wearing leather shoes at all, but when we change it to microfiber because we want it stiffer and lighter, and then we change to a rigid carbon sole, that's where the problems begin. And part of the reason is simply convention in the way cycling sho shoes are made. And there is no good reason for this at all. It's a, an artifact from fundamentally, in my opinion, what is a crude, uh, it's a crude method of trying to engage the windless mechanism. And the windless mechanism to really briefly explain it is when you raise up your first toe, so dorsiflexion, meaning like a dorsal fin on a shark, when you point your big toe up towards the ceiling, what happens is, or when you step and you walk and you push off on the forefoot, your big toe and all your toes go into dorsiflexion. And this actually puts tension on the arch, the transverse arch, which runs across the foot and activates, it puts tension in the plantar fascia and it changes the relationship of the bones in the foot to give your arch some structure and tension. And this is a normal part of walking and running. And just like Stefan said, everything is an extension ultimately of running and walking. It's one of our most primal functions we have. It's how we negotiate the face of the earth. It's how we get to water. It's how we run away from predators, etc., etc. So when we're running and walking, we engage this plantar fascia, this, this windless mechanism when the first ray or the great toe as it's known is put into dorsiflexion. And when this happens, this stabilizes the ankle. It organizes the foot in a way and it activates the arch so that we can negotiate uneven terrain. And it kind of acts like a little suspension bridge almost. It's what enables us to run over uneven terrain and help keep that mechanism active. That's part of running and walking. Put your foot in a rigid carbon fiber shoe. If it was dead flat, you wouldn't have a way to activate that mechanism, right? So what shoes did, leather shoes, and eventually carbon shoes did, is they started to add this artificial curve to it. So when you put your shoe on a table and you look at it from the side, you'll see this two factors of the shoe that it's not a flat shoe. The foot is not flat when it rests in a carbon shoe. The toes pop up towards the sky and the heel raises up at the back. And I call that toe spring and heel rise. Mm. And that puts your foot into that crude windless mechanism but it also limits how much movement we have and how much drive we can have through the, the first metatarsal head, which is a big part of that driving power from the hip through the knee, extending the hip, extending the knee, and then driving into that first metatarsal and allowing that slight, very, um, very slight rotation of the foot under load, right? As you drive really hard, there's a natural, rotation there. And that's exactly what we're talking about capturing in the right engagement. So when we make a shoe with toe spring and heel rise, we kind of, it's like, what's the best way to say this? It's, it's like using a hammer to drive in thumbtacks. I don't know. It's a very crude instrument to try to accomplish something. And it's a very bell curve solution to the problem right. because you're making assumptions about the rider's foot. It's a bell curve solution. You're making right assumption about what, how much heel rise is going to be necessary to engage the windless mechanism or toe spring when you do. So you can engage that mechanism by either raising the heel or the toe. And that's kind of what the shoe is doing. For some of you who've been around for a while, you remember the really old Karnak shoes. They had an insane amount of heel rise to them. They were almost like high heeled shoes. And I'm not sure exactly what the French designer engineer's philosophy was behind that shoe. If it was windless mechanism, or if they thought you were going to get more behind the pedal, I suspect it was the latter and kind of give you that ability to drive with the heel was their, their line of thought. But after playing with lots of shoes and riding in lots of shoes with different heel spring and toe rise, 
I said that backwards. You, I have come to realize that really the earth, the surface of the earth is fundamentally flat. And when you lift weights, you don't want to put wedges under your heels or toes, unless of course you're getting into advanced weight training or muscle activation. And you're trying to come about a, with a sp very specific effect to activate the soleus, for example. Um, but that's, those are special cases. When you go to lift weights, generally speaking, if you're using a wedge system, like a wedged heel, it's a lot of times it's a short, it's because the athlete has a shortcoming that we're trying to overcome. Like for example, they can't squat as deep as they want to. So what I'm saying is wedges are working against our natural function and they are enabling dysfunction in the chain. And they're also preventing the foot from fully expressing the potential push of the athlete. And if you've heard my podcast on how to pedal a bike 101 and 102, which are a mere two hours each, <laughs> I told you I'm a dork, then you, you know that how I feel about it is that fundamentally pedaling is about pushing. It's about modifying that push to drive at 12 o'clock and polishing the top side to add some forward vector. And at the bottom, pulling back, not up, but back at the bottom of the stroke and then letting the other side take over and two half circles make a hole. I, I would add uh, yeah. arch support too to the toe spring and that's more controversial. It's a controversial topic. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. Yeah, that's a good one. So, so I think, okay, what's the problem with all these modern shoes? Fundamentally, the design construction of most of them is similar. They have a curved carbon fiber sole, which is more or less, I'll say, flat when viewed. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of curvature when viewed longitudinally from the heel to the toe. Some shoes have a little bit of that. The exceptions are the Lake 403, CX 403 and the Bont, which are both more like a carbon fiber bathtub. So they've got these vertical walls that wrap up around most of the foot, including the heel. And that is to give your foot more lateral stability. And those are a bit different design, but most of these shoes follow the same basic formula. Um, they've got some sort of heel cup. Heel cups have gotten better in the last five years, especially. They're a little stiffer, offer a little bit more control there's this balance between offering a shoe that gives you too much control of your motion and allowing the normal power production of a human being with the right amount of, we'll say, um, movement. So when we add a microfiber upper and we took away the leather upper, we lost the ability for the upper to conform to your foot over time. All these microfiber uppers, they're just basically Naga hide, you know, millions of innocent Nagas murdered every year to make these shoes. And, and that stuff really doesn't conform too well to your foot. The latest generation, now we've got some mesh knit kind of things coming out. And I think that's probably a step in the right direction. Really, if you think about it, it's just synthetic leather. They're trying to replicate the, the, the elastic or we'll say um, qualities of leather that allow it to conform to the foot, but in a artificial way and maybe a more durable way possibly, but when you use really high quality leather, those things can last forever. So I know there's a whole like vegan culture out there and people, some people don't want to use animal products. I'm not even going to touch that. I'll just say that I think leather has a lot of redeeming qualities when you use it as footwear and leave it there. But there are also ways in which we can improve on this model and think about harnessing or capturing the energy of the athlete in a different way. So the other challenge with stock shoes is that you've got this game of tension between where, how you secure the foot in the shoe. And we can use buckles, we can use boas, we can use laces. 
and riders have their preferences and people can be very tribal in their thinking about which ones work for them. And that's understandable because you're dealing with a stock shoe and you've probably had lots of shoe discomfort in your life. I mean, most cyclists I know have at one time or another been really miserable because of their shoes. So that's not really a great track record. So you find the shoe that kind of offends you the least I've found and you end up sticking with that. And you say you love it, but then when we break it down, it's like, well, yeah, okay, on hot summer rides, the thing kill me, the th these shoes kill me. It's like, really? You told me you love these shoes, but on hot summer rides, but yeah. I mean, how many hot summer rides do you do? I don't know, I do quite a few. So I think standard shoes have a long way to go. The other, some of the other challenges are, there's not a lot of standardization in terms of cleat placement. And this is one way in which a 3D shoe can really have a huge advantage. Because normally what we do as bike fitters, and when I say we, I mean me and the other Steve Hogg fitters, I can't speak for anyone else, is we use bony landmarks to place the cleat fore aft. Okay. And we would normally recommend uh, a comp, the old school neutral used to be you put the axle of the pedal directly under the first metatarsal head. Most fitters have realized that's not really the best way to go. The foot isn't that stable. There's too much ankling that happens and you lose some power and you've got to use rely on gastroc and soleus too much or put on too much tension on the Achilles to actually have the foot be stable under power. So we've moved, started to migrate the axle backwards towards the heel and a good baseline would be to split the distance between the first metatarsal, that's your the area under uh, the ball of the foot or the the big toe, the great toe, and the fifth metatarsal, that's the ball of the fifth toe, if you think about it that way. Yep. And we split that in half, and that's a good baseline for an axle. My axles are actually much closer to my fifth metatarsal than they are to my first. So when you have a 3D scan of the foot, you know exactly where the metatarsals are. And since the shoe is custom printed for you, yep. we could put the click holes in exactly the right place. And as a fitter, this is one enormous challenge we have is someone comes in with a shoe, there's no real standard for where those holes are drilled. And on top of that, there's also no, no way to know what the client has. Some people have a long foot length, but short toes. So they might need a cleat that's more forward. Right. Other clients have a very short foot length or whatever, an average foot length, but very long toes. And then we want their cleats further back, but you can't get their cleats far enough back on the shoe. That's a more common problem. You can sometimes solve that problem with a speed play cleat extender plate, Sometimes you have to break out the Dremel and drill holes in shoes, and then you're put, dropping T-nuts in and fighting yeah. with stuff, and yeah, yeah. you know there's whatever threads Band going everywhere and Dremel tools and band-aid solutions. Band-aids, yeah, exactly. And and then things are always coming loose and rusting in place, and it's kind of a train wreck. So these are little fitter problems that and that are are just going to be tidy checked boxes when we have a custom shoe with where we know the cleat holes can be placed in the right position. So. Between heel, heel rise and toe spring and the non-conformable uppers and the constant battle of where you're going to place your retention system on the foot and cleat holes being in the wrong place on many shoes, not all, These are this is a long checklist of challenges we have with modern shoes, but the biggest one that I found is that most shoe companies are just confused and they are not having the correct order of operations in the world of design. And the simple order is function comes first, then you worry about how it looks. And if you're doing it any other way, <sighs> sigh, sigh. So look, there are a lot of shoe companies who design these shoes, especially in particular the toe box. It's a train wreck. These, these shoes should have nothing to do with Italian leather dress shoes but we've got this almond shaped toe. 
because somebody thinks that that looks cool somewhere. And to me, that looks disastrous. It looks like toes that are jammed in the front of a shoe. And I'm all about the form of the human body. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that has ever been made. And the human body is amazing when you study it, but to jam those toes, I mean, you wouldn't wear gloves that made you carry everything around like a flipper and smash your fingers together. Why is it societally acceptable for us to wear shoes that jam our toes into each other, don't let us feel the ground, let us deal with constant numbness? I unpacked this quite a bit in my pods with Jesse Stensland. Her feet grew a size and a half after she was done racing. Grew, air quotes, meaning yeah. they just spread out into their natural form. Right. So even some of the best shoes on the market now that have better toe boxes than others, Bont being a good example, their toe box is still too restrictive for me by a good margin. I've spent a lot of time dremeling those things and yep. gluing on little pieces of Dyneema and making holes in them and stuff. And people just laugh at me because my shoes, I show up to rides and I've got like gorilla tape over my toes, but I don't care. It, to me, once there's some stuff you can't unsee and there's some things you can't unfeel. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, I, I think just from a beyond performance and comfort, there's this like, it's almost like a, we have a connection to the, the tools we, we ride and get pleasure with. Right. So a bike is no different. And, and just that like constriction on the nervous system that comes from having your, your feet literally bound unnaturally is just takes away from the whole experience and the integration of you, your body and the bicycle. So that, I think that's also like a big motivation around this project is it's not just sheer performance and, and like getting away from pain, but it's also like, how do you, you know, how do you get to those apex experiences where you, you have this seamless integration between the, the actual riding experience and yourself and the bike, you know? So mm -hmm. that's, uh, and yeah, once you, I mean, it's as simple as giving someone a toe box that, uh, you know, that, that actually fits their foot. Like that's, that's it seems simple, but pretty, the toe pretty pro profound. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. under load, you know, like you were yeah. saying, it's like cycling is, you're pushing, it's kind of like, you know, leg press, deadlift type motion, right? Lunge, lunge motion. Lunge, yeah. yeah. And, and being able to, you know, if you just watch your feet barefoot, when you do any of those activities and you load up a singular leg, your, your toes spread out mm -hmm. and they, they need the space to do that. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, basically you're, I, you know, in my experience, the nervous system is, is bothered and balance is compromised. Power is compromised. Agreed. And this is a particular wormhole with cycling because cycling is by definition a sport where we condition ourselves to, to ride a bike. We, we condition ourselves to handle the load of cycling. And we do that, you know, ostensibly through light load at first and we add volume. This is a classic training model and you add volume. So you do lots of rides in your, you know, 39, 17 or 19 on flat roads. That's a 36, whatever in modern gearing. So <laughs> And you just spin and spin and spin and you acclimate yourself to the bike. And this is the problem. This is one of the beautiful things about cycling. That's how you convert the walking into a supple muscle and you are able to pedal the bike in a really fluid way and do all the amazing things cyclists can do. But at the same time, it has these drawbacks and the drawbacks are that over time, you can almost kind of become acclimated to a lot of discomfort and a lot of pain and sort of accept it as normal, Yeah. right? Um, the same thing happens in saddles. And I can tell from my own adventures like, you know, I used to think a physique Arion was a great saddle for me. And it was, I rode it for about eight years, including the Olympics, but I would never ride that saddle now. Never. Because I didn't know what I didn't know. Exactly. And so 
I, but I was acclimated to that saddle. Now, did I have a lot of problems because of that saddle? Yeah, I did. I came back from rides and I was numb and things turned on an hour later. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Is that bad? I don't know. I got to go train again tomorrow. I'm trying to go to the Olympics, you know, whatever. Yeah. Trying to win worlds. Like you're for a, for a man or woman with a, a why there's always a how, you know, you just make it work. You deal with it because you are passionate about the sport. Yep. And I think so many cycling shoes fall in that exact category. People are, they find the the least offensive and then they deal with it and their toes are jammed. And just like you said, it's, it's um something we come conditioned to deal with. And once you find equipment that allows you to not handle that problem anymore, it's just, in, it enhances your whole enjoyment of the sport in so many ways. Right. Totally, yeah. 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 I mean, like Rob said, you, we just want to get the equipment kind of out of the way. Right. To, so you don't make, have to think about it. Make that natural, that, yeah, that ingrained uh, sense of powerful movement that exists within us, mm -hmm. make that come out and express itself without being literally blocked by walls, you know? So, right, right. And, 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 you know, hopefully, yeah. yeah, the toe box is just the first third of the shoe. So, yeah, so yeah. So hopefully we, we, we've done other stuff yeah. going backwards as well. So, yeah. okay, should we get into the, the cool stuff? The yeah, nuts well, and bolts. I mean, you you hit the um, the cleat position, yeah. So, mm -hmm. like you said, I think that's a really powerful part of this is that you know we we see exactly where your metatarsals are and can position those holes, uh, you know, in a ratio between your first and fifth. So, uh, so that's super cool, and, and I think also being able to you know whereas uh, to natively have speed play be part of the equation is is pretty cool too. Without yep. You know, any spacers so you, you can Daffy. choose you can yeah, yeah you can choose yeah um, whatever uh whatever pedal system you ride mm -hmm. which, is, which is good yep so just to hit those before we keep moving yeah 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 lots, lots of details we could dive into um you were you were talking a minute ago just about um you know the effect of how to how to get that that power transfer and and it really is um it's it's we talk about the the natural gate movement um and and within that motion, uh, where to harness that power. So we've been, we've put in a lot of research uh, in the past, uh, looking at where to hold the foot, how to properly constrain the foot. So mm -hmm. there's a lot in the design that you won't see just by looking at it, but let's say there's a lot of testing, a lot of research that this is based on of uh, how to properly constrain the foot. So where are those critical points to take advantage of, um, again, the, the power transfer um and those natural movements and then where do we let the foot be free as, yeah as you were just saying yeah yeah and 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 that freedom is half the battle as well mm -hmm. we, we've had comments from testers saying that their toes are engaged for the first time ever in a cycling shoe people have been cycling for 20 years mm -hmm. and saying that coming through the five and six o'clock you can actually feel your toes engaged mm -hmm. which is just a, you know things they've never even felt before like you say you didn't know what you didn't know you didn't yep. know what you didn't feel before yep um and then you know coming over the top of course there's a, another big uh benefit there where we talk about um you know kind of the, the wind up like a pitcher if you, if you have a pitcher kind of winding up to get the maximum speed of the pitch uh, as you come over the top at 11 12 one o'clock um same thing there with the rigid monocoque uh unlike other shoes we're able to basically capture power yep. and start to generate the momentum coming over the top so by the time we get into the power phase we first of all started that sooner uh, but we're also uh we have more momentum going into that and then mm -hmm. it's a bit of a combined effect because then your other foot as it comes through the five and six, it's starting to engage the toes yep. as the next one comes over the top. Yep. So effectively, we're just flywheel. Yeah, yeah it's uh, a flywheel, but we're also able to kind of focus on what I call the horizontal aspects of pedaling, which is the twelve one two and the four five six, 
And those are classically where the dead spots are, especially if your saddle's too far forward or too high. But if you've got your, your bike set up in the right way, you can drive through those parts of the stroke, then every time you pedal, the bike doesn't accelerate excessively at three and four o'clock, right? You don't get that surge on every single pedal stroke, right, which right. you guys were at my studio today. You saw I've got a fit platform with a Saris MP1 platform, which moves back and forth every time someone pedals or, well, if they're a sloppy pedaler, you see the yeah. movement on every single pedal stroke, the, the trainer platform will surge. Yep. So this is really easy to observe. I mean, you can see it on someone riding on the road too. You can literally see the bike accelerating. You can also see the drivetrain losing or gaining tension on each pedal stroke, right? The derailleur spring, you'll see that subtle tension in the chain changing. Right, right. So when a shoe like this allows you to drive with those, with uh, over a greater broader range, a greater number of degrees of the pedal stroke, then that's naturally going to transfer into less acceleration of the bike in every stroke. So all you weight weenies out there who are so concerned with your, you know, 16 gram derailleur pulleys or whatever, you can, you can uh, still obsess over that stuff, but know that we're helping you convert your metabolic energy to mechanical energy more effectively. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay. So maybe we can, um, talk a bit about some of the finer points. And I know, I know you guys want to give our audience some details on this, but at the same time, you're going to hold some cards to your chest and I totally respect that. So what I, I'm holding a prototype in my hands here and I'm looking at the, the carbon exoskeleton. And what I've noticed from my own testing is that the heel cup on this shoe is really, really quite supportive and it wraps up quite high. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about that design feature and how that's going to help transfer power specifically, or do you have other aspects you want to get into? Yeah, I think, you know, just from a general um, perspective, you know, you, we were talking earlier about sort of this, this kinetic chain, right? Like the connection from hip to knee to ankle, you know, like the old song goes, right? Yep. And, and so really design-wise, what we're trying to do is create like rigidity, you know, a, the less slop that exists in that entire chain, the the uh the more power that ultimately ends up in the pedal and that can come via um, your musculature and tendons or your or, or the shoe itself right mm -hmm. like the shoe is ultimately uh, it's the transmission of the body bike relationship and so to the extent that the heel cup is totally anatomical and it's also connected to this rigid carbon monocoque um, that becomes like an integral kind of triangular point between the rigidity that's the shoe lets uh the rigidity of your foot that the shoe allows you to now tap into um the foot then connects that rigidity to various places on the shoe these kind of cardinal points and the heel being one of them so mm -hmm. so it's and if you take one or two of them away all of a sudden the you know you, you reintroduce slop back into the system so they you know having that tight anatomical and lateral stiffness on the heel is like critical to engaging that power triangle that exists not only in the shoe but uh but within your foot and ankle and then all the way up the chain so so yeah it's uh the net effect and you know maybe we're getting too like arcane here but like the net effect is that you have basically like a lever um and you're extending that crank into your foot uh the pedal the shoe mm -hmm. to create more leverage uh to you know to push the crank forward yeah leverage is, is everything so. leverage is everything in a sport that's based on mechanical yep really fundamentally we're manipulating you know we change gears or change crank length we're just influencing the the lever length yep. on 
ultimately to drive the rear wheel, the real axle, the rear axle, the bike, the rear tire of the bike, right? Yep. So we're just playing with those levers based on our speed and the terrain and the wind and our fatigue and all those other things. Yeah. So I, I you know, without getting into too much detail, you know, I'll say like the one of the besides the heel, like the key thing, like this is the first like real monocoque shoe, right? Mm -hmm. That's ever existed. Um, so the top side, the instep, the dorsal is this uh, rigid roof basically to your foot that is also from a power standpoint connected to the rest of the shoe and then thereby the pedal and the crank so on and so forth so yeah um so you know at the, i hate using the expression the end of the day but at the end of the day mm -hmm. it's like you know it's about ground reaction force and like can your you know are you putting force um from the soles of your feet into this structure that's then going down into the the whole drive chain and right into the frame right so um so to the extent that uh you know we have this rigid roof that basically contains the the top side of your foot to maintain that pressure and the sole the whole time the heel itself the sole the top side of your foot create this this kind of triangle of power that you know that that allows power to be transferred like you just said at different places in the in the pedal stroke that previously uh with a soft upper shoe would just get bled off via the, the top side of the foot. Right. So. Right. But there's some other aspects to the dorsal component of your design that are even go beyond because we do have some shoes that have pretty rigid top side dorsal aspects. We have yep. the Mavic Comet Comet Comet, however you want to say it. They've got a carbon exoskeleton. That's yep. certainly a very rigid shoe. Bonds have a three ply upper that's got a really rigid upper and some of them have cables that wrap over the top. Yeah. Um, some of the specialized shoes have Dyneema material built into the upper, which is quite rigid. So mm -hmm. do you want to unpack a little bit about how your shoe is going to be a big step forward from those? Not to use a really terrible pun, a big <laughs> pedal stroke forward. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so I think what's, what, you know, this is, you know, it's the integration of all these aspects that makes this thing, I think, super unique. And that, you know, then we go back um, to the custom side of this. Like we have a you know, a, a perfect topography of the top side of your foot, right? So, mm -hmm. so basically we, we call it the dorsal orthotic, like the, the dorsal um, aspect of the shoe can create sort of neutrality in the foot mm -hmm. due to the, you know, how it comes down and sort of positions the top side of your foot. So we call it the dorsal orthotic because it takes the place of a traditional uh, arch support or orthotic beneath it and allows your arches to, to really, um, to, to function naturally and create natural tension, which creates that rigidity all the way up the chain. And also I think creates a lot more pleasure in terms of the pedal stroke. That's a whole nother thing, but mm -hmm. the, the dorsal orthotic component of this, uh, I think it's super cool because it, yeah, it creates that sort of like neutrality, but then the way we have it designed as Rob kind of alluded to before, it's, it's, it's kind of caging certain cardinal points, but then also allowing, that natural rotational pronation, like not pronation in a, in a, in a bad word sense, but the active pronation that's natural to locomotion right. to exist. So, um, and, and that in turn transfers more, um, when you pronate and gate, you're, you're transferring, uh, power to that first met, which is like the, that's, that's where it all happens. Right. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so the shoe design really like allows for a lot of that natural biomechanics while harnessing and aligning other parts of the foot to transfer power. So it's kind of like a dual, 
uh, dual function there built into the, the whole design, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. So you and I have had a lot of conversations, Stefan, about, yep. about driving through that first metatarsal. And maybe you can just walk people through the intricacy of that. I think that's really important. Like, what is it about driving? What do you mean when you say driving into the first metatarsal? And why is that important for cyclists? Like, what's so key about that point of that, of that power delivery? Look, I'm not like a biomechanics expert by any means. I'm not, I don't have an academic background in this, but I know from, you know, like, like I said, I come from skiing background and like hundreds of thousands of turns where I'm inside my own body kind of meditating and try to understand what's going on. And I think it's intrinsic. It's exaggerated in skiing and, and more like lateral cutting sports, like any field sports, soccer, football, you know, mm -hmm. where you're, you're basically like a change of direction requires rotation and it requires you to load up that first met in order to create propulsion right right and so in cycling it's the same exact thing it's like there's elements of gait and in order to push down on that pedal and the, in the most effective way you need to transfer weight to that first met and if there's parts of the shoe that are again getting in the way like a lot of traditional shoes do yep you don't have effective weight transfer transverse from the heel to the first met and so you're you know, you're creating another blockage in the nervous system and the, in the, in your ability to, to efficiently and quickly transfer the power up the chain. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Good. I think that's a great way to, to say it. Rob, did you have anything to add on that equation? No, not in that part. Uh, okay. I am, I am interested to add, um, back to the testing we did with you, Colby, where, where you kind of, uh, keyed into this pretty quickly that the biomechanics also lead into uh, a more effective uh, position where, we are engaging your upper leg muscles mm -hmm. as opposed to your lower leg muscles. So there's also um, efficiencies there as far as uh, how do we put yourself, your, your foot into a better position through these biomechanics. Um, so again, just like walking on a flat, the flat earth, yeah. how do we, again, engage those upper leg muscles, uh, which don't tire as easily uh, over a long ride or are more powerful as opposed to right. the lower ones. I remember you, you kind of felt that yourself as well. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, there's some, there's some, been some studies done on this, but you know, one of the big 30,000 foot view takeaways on cycling is as we look at how novice cyclists or beginner cyclists drive the bike, they tend to generate most of their joint force around the knee, right? Or the distal quads, the quads that are far away from you, your center. Yep. And this is a less efficient way to drive the bike. Yep. And we know this by reverse engineering, because then when you examine the pros, especially the really, really good pros, they all drive from the hips. So it's pretty simple. Yep. You wanna make power more from the hips than you do from the knees. Knees are not really areas where we want a whole lot of torque focused. It, this may not be obvious to everyone, but it's, it's pretty obvious when you've been studying human bodies for a while, knees don't really deal with a whole lot of force really well, right? We wanna, we wanna have force be on either end of that spectrum. And for the record, I also want to say that when I do bike fits and I use my, my movement screen process before I see an athlete on the bike to get a feel for how they move, a common theme that I see, a really common theme is athletes have really crappy ankle and foot stability on the whole. And yeah. by athletes, I mean cyclists. And the more you ride and the more you pedal in that carbon fiber flipper with that obtuse curvature applied to it and lock your foot in that place where it's not allowed to move or be dynamic or, or drive into the pedal. It's sort of almost like a carbon fiber coffin in a way. 
the more we ride there, the weaker our feet and ankles get. And yeah. arches are a big part of that. Arches are a huge part of that. And ankle stability, you know, the ability to control how much pronation and supination we have. You know, pronation is definitely a bad word right now in the movement world, at least superficially. Right. But the reality is pronation is part of normal gait, right? It's part it's, of any sport. Yeah, it's the distinction between active pronation, which is the normal part, versus over pronation, which is like the yeah. kind of medically diagnosed kind of thing that orthotics try to solve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And what, and okay, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Stefan. I have my own philosophies, but... Yeah. Why don't we want to control excessive pronation with by just jacking up uh, the arch with a giant, a giant mound of plastic or carbon fiber? Why don't we want to just um, put a bunch of material under the navicular and and jack it sky high to prevent that foot from collapsing? Well, I'll give you just like uh, a very simplistic, like simplistic, like to me, it just feels bad. It like uh, it just feels unnatural. Like you. Uh, you turn off your nervous system, you turn off that arch. I like before I was talking about creating a rigid structure, right? And if you support and brace the arch from beneath, um, those muscles uh, are, they're going to atrophy. They're not going to be used correctly. They're mm -hmm. not, now you're, you're supplanting what should be naturally designed tension into those arches with an artificial support mm -hmm. um, that, you know, is telling those arches, uh, we don't, we don't need to work. And, and so you're creating kind of this, you don't get the true, you, you, you actually, in my opinion, or in, in my experience of sport is you, you start turning off, um, that rigidity through the whole chain, which is essential to driving energy and power from higher up in the chain, as you, as you've just described. Mm -hmm. Um, so if the arches turn off, you're, you're creating a, a, a like a sort of flaccid, um, part of the chain that no longer connects, uh, top to bottom correctly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah, just going back to the, like, what feels good, you know, it, like I grew up, I grew up in bad shoes, like so, so many other people. And I have this very loose, like horrible foot structure. And that's, what's made me like, I think very sensitive to all this stuff is mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I, like, you know, as a teenager and growing up, I was like prescribed all these footbeds and arch supports and, and it just made things just worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and, you know, it was only, you know, we all wear, um, these Vivo barefoot shoes and whatnot. And it's like, once you give your feet, a, a, you know, a bit of time to, to start building that internal strength, it's mm -hmm. like you, again, it's like you, you don't know what you don't know until, until you feel that. And then and that all of a sudden you have a much deeper, uh, kinetic kind of integration with your core and with the rest of your body, your, your whole body starts to move integrally versus like in like little chopped off. Yes. Um, um, little components. And so, so I think, yeah, you know, just in terms of like back to the feels component of riding a bicycle and, and also power transfer, it's like, you want that arch to be naturally active and, and being a key contributor to that train. That's our philosophy. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Um, that makes me think of a podcast I listened to not too long ago with uh, Peter Atia, And I can't remember the guest's name. It was a woman who was a, a foot doctor. Uh, and she was talking about how her perspective has shifted a lot on prescribing of orthotics. And how she used to really recommend, you know, a typical orthotic model that supported the arch and supported the heel and gave the foot all the structure and support. And, and look, this is me coming down this journey myself. I mean, I literally have ridden in carbon fiber footbeds that have 
an arch that on the medial side is probably 45 millimeters tall. It's massive. Like yeah, they, I've been riding this stuff forever. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm the kid who, when I was a junior, I was racing and I just had horrible weak ankles and sloppy feet. And I got my first pair of, of orthotics and it felt like someone stuck a golf ball under my foot. But I also knew right away for me, it felt better, yeah. but I think I was the exception because my feet were so sloppy, so gumby that I needed some modicum of control. What I didn't really realize is exactly. I needed to learn to, to build that control innately, yep. not to rely on an exterior uh, device. And this is how this woman explained this to me. It was such a simple concept. And when she said it in this podcast, I was like, okay, I knew this already, but this is a brilliant way to explain it. And so I, I'm stealing it, even though I'm not giving you her name because I can't remember it. But I'll drop a link to this pod in the show notes if you want to chase it. It's worth a listen to understand this concept. But what she said was, any prosthetic device weakens the body inherently. Example, let's say you get in a fender bender and you get whiplash. Yeah. You go to the doctor, you get a neck brace. After you wear a neck brace for three months, are your neck muscles weaker or stronger? Everyone gets this right. Your muscles are weaker. Why? Because the prosthetic device, the neck brace held up your head and did the job of what your neck muscles would normally do. So they atrophy. Yep. A, a huge rigid orthotic, a structural orthotic that's attempting to align the foot structurally. I'm not talking about all orthotics that are more proprioceptive in nature, but specifically ones that are really rigid and hold your foot in place will do the same thing. It will make your ankle and foot weaker. It will make your arch muscles weaker. Yep. It'll make your plantar fascia probably weaker and less durable and less capable of handling load. And then what happens when you don't ride your bike and you go for a walk with your dog and <laughs> you fall on as soon as you hit a rock or, you know, yeah, God forbid a slippery surface. Like yeah, this is, we have to engage with the earth. This is important, right? It seems like this kind of like awareness is happening across a lot of sport right now mm -hmm. for sure. And like, you know, obviously barefoot movement happening for, for yeah. a long time, but yeah, you know, I, I just when it comes back to like power, just pure performance and power transfer, but to say nothing of feel again is like, if you have a soft upper shoe with a heavily, um, supported orthotic underneath, you're basically like, um, you know, in my view, it's, 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 you've just created like a gap in the whole chain of rigidity that needs the needs, uh, a chain of rigidity that, that's dependent on all of its parts in sequence in order to transfer that power from your core and your hips down to the, mm -hmm. down to the pedals. And now you've, you've taken out, you know, via, even if you have this rigid thing under your foot, your foot itself is, is flaccid because it's, right. it's, it's passive. It's passive. It's not yeah. flaccid. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, maybe a yeah. good metaphor for it actually. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's like, uh, yeah, passive and flaccid because it, yeah, it's, it's not uh, part of that chain anymore. And, and so you, it's, to me, it's almost like you're, um, it, it, it's almost like a cloak. It's, it's, uh, it, the orthotic is there to create rigidity, but it's in fact, just moving it a little bit lower down the chain and then not addressing the, the actual right. issue, which, which is tension in the arches, uh, natural tension, natural tension in the arches yep. from that strong supportive base. Yep. I would argue that it's not even also, yes, of course it's about rigidity or tension in the system. We might say it's about that tensegral tension, tensegrity tension, yeah. uh, tensegrity tension of this whole system, right? Um, go Google that one. If you're wondering what the hell I'm talking about tensegrity, but it's also about nervous system response, Yeah. right? I mean, anytime you have a system that's, the body is a cybernetic organism, it's a system of systems. And then the 
the nervous system responds to his environment with proprioceptive input. You know, when you do a push-up, you feel the pressure of your hand pushing into the mat, the gym mat, or the floor, or whatever you're doing it on. When you walk with bare feet, your body's registering the sensation of the concrete, the pebbles, the beach sand, whatever you're stepping on, right? Yeah. The logs, the wood. And that's an important part of your response and reaction to the ground. It's how you engage with your environment. So when we put our foot in the shoe that kind of pushes the foot into this subtle dorsiflexion, raises the heel, but then turns everything off and supports it passively. And then we wrap an upper over the top that doesn't quite fit and has pressure points and then smush your toes in. Yeah. And then because your foot kind of simultaneously is being smushed, but also isn't really held well. So we're just going to tighten everything down extra. To create like the illusion, the illusion of power yeah. transfer. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. It's These not, are the problems we're hoping to solve, right? Yeah. That's not the best scenario for sure. Agreed. <laughs> and that's why we got into this. So awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean like, you know, you can throw, I, I think the, you know, your own perception and your, your relationship with your nervous system is like the most powerful scientific tool. You know, it's like, it just tells you when stuff's right or wrong. Like if you kind of open up to it, right. And, mm -hmm. and all the things you just described, I think, you know, many people, um, yeah, you just take, you, you just accept it as reality, but in fact, it's, yeah, there's, there's, there's a much better way out there once mm -hmm. you, um, take away a lot of those restrictions and open up that natural movement, but still, um, make the goal of, of capturing power and harnessing power mm -hmm. in the right way. So it's, it's the balance right. between those two objectives that hopefully create something quite special. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way. You just phrased that. i yeah, I lost, I had another point I want to make there, but cool. Cool. Um, so, okay, let's talk, maybe we can help our clients or our audience understand a little bit more about how the shoe is going to come to life. So we've got this carbon fiber exoskeleton, right? And yep. are there still going to be Kevlar strands in there? At one point there were, is that still a thing? How do we, how is this not going to feel just like a hard shell? Rob, what, what are we doing to interface between the human and the shell? And, and what happens if there's a part that hurts. How do we solve these problems? How are you regulating the tension? I mean, how does it tighten? How do you get your foot in it? <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so it's it's a modular system. So we have a inner liner. Um, mainly it's padding and again in particular places. So we, we have the, the places that we know we want to hold the foot. We obviously need padding between your foot and the, and the hard shell. But, um, but as close as possible. As close as possible because Without it's the exact contour of your, yeah. of your foot, we can get closer. We don't need a lot of padding. We don't padding. need a lot of padding. Right. Uh, we still right. need a little bit. Of mm -hmm. course you need a bit. Um, so we do have padding in, in certain places. So there is an inner liner uh, that, that you know, provides that comfort there. Mm -hmm. um, again, we don't need padding in a lot of places, so we can let that uh, breathe a bit more and, and be more ventilated. Mm -hmm. um, then we've talked about the outer cover, uh, the weather wrap. So we do have uh, the option for different outer covers as well. And the exoskeleton is, of course, the main, the main structure. Um, so that's kind of the basic mm -hmm. uh, modular system. Uh, as far as the, uh, the, of course, you need to, to get the, the, the monocoque open to get your foot in. So that's one of the inherent challenges. If we could just, you know, uh, have it permanently attached to your foot, that would right. be easier. Um, Don't give always, people that idea. You might get clients who ask you for yeah, that. Yeah, we, we've, we've, <laughs> we've always said, like, if we could just, you know, put a screw into the, the calcaneus, it would really help our, our right. job you know, quite right. a bit. But people don't, don't like that. So 
So, uh, so we do need to open it to that. That's one of the main reasons for the, the clamshell construction. Uh, so when the, the viewers see the, the images, um, you'll kind of see this, the, you know, again, clamshell holding your foot from the top and the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, so we do, uh, so we are able to open that. Um, you know, of course it needs to be quick to get in, quick to get out, uh, easy to get in, easy to get out. Um, the exact buckle systems, we've actually had a few in testing uh, for quite some time. And, you know, we're testing with quite a few athletes. Uh, you're probably, you're super aware, and I'm sure a lot of viewers are aware, of the, the highly iterative nature of, of product development. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to go through lots of tests, lots of iteration. Um, so that part of it, we're still refining. Um, the, the, the beauty of the 3D printing, of course, is that we can test that on a daily or weekly basis. Um, so one of the challenges, I mean, we talk about new technology that makes some of these things possible. Another interesting aspect of that is if you were making a carbon fiber shoe, typically you need molds. And so then, okay, you have to wait to CNC or other ways of making molds. Uh, by the time you go through a full iteration, I mean, it can be one month, two months, three, four months, just mm -hmm. to get one iteration of, of that sample to test. And then you do a round of testing, get some feedback, and then iterate and improve. Um, you might be doing a handful of iterations per year, for instance, um, whereas we can basically turn around you know, a new set of prints in a matter of days and within one week to the next, uh, basically get our testing feedback and, and roll that into our next model. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, it allows the, the entire process to, to go a lot quicker. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty close on a lot of these things. Um, but I will say that, um, you know, we're, we're at kind of an interesting time to, to be able to first release it, to be able to actually publicly talk about it now yep. uh, and show, you know, on the launch year, show uh, renders and show uh, the, the prototypes and show, um, you know, the, the current state of it. Um, and then we have a little bit more refinement to do uh, into, into, you know, the, the full production. Um, so that's kind of the exciting part uh, of the process when you kind of know you're on something, you, you're getting some good, you know, performance numbers and, yep. um, you have, we have functional parts and we've gotten a lot of good testing so far. Um, and we still have a bit more uh, testing to go. So. Nice. Yeah. And so just for context, so people know we're recording this about the middle of May of 2021, the official launch is scheduled for later this year, we'll say. So this podcast will drop, uh, when these guys say go and they're ready for it to drop. So. When Rob's talking about iterative processes, these guys have been working on this for quite a while. What's the origins project? What's your total timeline? When did you first wake up one day and go, I'm gonna make a shoe? Well, it's actually, uh, I mean, I won't get into all the nitty gritty Genesis story stuff, but I mean, like once we we actually started printing shoes has been about a year from now. Yeah, uh, right I, now, just under a year. And, okay. you know, in, in prior projects, like Rob alluded to, it's like the, the just the, the nature of doing things through traditional composite processes and, and R&D like I mean th that's what's just so like mind-blowingly kind of wild sci-fi about this thing I think is just the 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 iteration around the algorithm to go from scan to print is mm -hmm. uh, and like how the shoe fits and how it functionally works I mean we've we've been through hundreds hundreds and hundreds of iterations I would say wow um, yeah uh, whereas you know in a traditional process that would it would take like literally yeah years upon years upon right. years to to get to this level of precision and and you know the algorithm it's not just like you know you scan your foot and then on your like we like you alluded to at the beginning of the of the pod is like um if you had a home 3d printer it's not just so simple as printing your foot right there's right there's so much uh complexity built into this the fit algorithm and the performance algorithm to extract all of that 
all of the kind of natural function that we've talked about, the force transfer and the fit. So mm -hmm. you're manipulating that scan in, in, in such crazy ways to, to get to the end, mm -hmm. end product. So yeah, we're, uh, as we sit here right now, we're, we're about probably a month away from, from the launch reveal. And then, and then, uh, yeah, production kind of probably four or five months out is what we're okay. targeting right now. So. So, so you can imagine the foot is probably the most complex thing to work on. So everyone right. is unique. Uh, there's no flat surface on it. So we're trying to hold it. We're trying to constrain it. Um, mm -hmm. We're trying to make it comfortable. There's, there's a lot of bony spots that are different on different people. Um, we have veins and arteries and blood flow issues. And so it, it's, it's just about one of the most complex um, mm -hmm. things to make a product for. Um, and so it's, first of all, it takes that number of iterations to get something right. Um, but again, and literally the, the technology that is hot off the press that's allowing this to, to be possible, that, that's the moment where we woke up one morning and realized it was possible. Yeah. It was really, really once we dug in and found this new technology that made it possible. And so basically it's kind of allowing, again, these things we wanted to do for a long time, it's actually allowing us to do it for the first time to accomplish the, the fit side of it, yeah. to accomplish the, the structural integrity, strength and stiffness, um, as well as the, the biomechanics. Yeah, that's it. I'll, I'll just add quickly, like, I mean, this, uh, what kind of amazes me about this project is like, really, it's the it's the confluence of like, five or six technologies that have only become commercially viable, like within the last kind of year, right, two, like, right. And so so it's, it's like, in it, the, the thing commercially doesn't exist with, you know, if you subtract one or two of those, it's like, it's not even possible. It's not possible. So yeah. So we're talking about the 3D scanning of the foot from an iPhone, which is yeah. not trivial, right? Like that's a big deal. That's a really big deal to have an app, a camera that's got high resolution enough to capture all that data from 3D. And we can talk a little bit about how that'll work with, with an actual client who wants to order shoes right in a minute, but yep. that's one. And then the second is to print a 3D shape that's hollow out of continuous carbon fiber, right? Huge, yeah. That's like you showed me some of the photos from that, Rob, like maybe we can post some of those on the Instagram feed or whatever. There's like four robot arms and like laser beams and stuff going everywhere. Like it's yeah. really yeah. cool. It's pretty, right? pretty modern yeah. manufacturing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like the, like the guys who developed the, the robotic carbon 3D printing tech out in uh, San Jose Orbital that are um, partners of ours in this. You know, it's like the, I mean, these guys are, there's like literally like extraterrestrial thinking going behind this. It's for automated factories and spaces, how this stuff was, uh -huh. was, uh, was, uh, generated and, and the impetus behind building the technology that makes this possible. Right. So it's, I mean, just like, you know, if you think of traditional 3d printing is, is on like, um, usually on a kind of gantry system and then you just, the, the insane, uh, like, uh, like Rob said, a foot is this incredibly complex, crazy organic structure, right? And mm -hmm. so to so to be able to print uh, using kind of essentially infinite access, uh, access using a, with a robot is, is, is quite insane, you know? Mm -hmm. And just has opened up this whole new world, which in my mind is like a few years ago, it's like sci-fi stuff, you know? Like the ability to have this rigid, high-performance, structure that envelops your entire foot that's built exactly for your foot and built in a matter of hours is like it's yeah it's pretty insane yeah not, not that long ago a lot of the uh the examples they were giving for any kind of carbon fiber 3d printing were 
you know, these brackets for planes and things that are always flat. Inherently, it's like, okay, you have some structural member that's got a pretty standard shape and it's got a right angle here and a flat surface there and right. great examples, you know, that's fine. Um, but yeah, it's really only now that, that we're able to do that in a three-dimensional space. Um, a lot of those applications were interesting, but but you could never do this uh, in, in kind of a flat scenario. So. Yeah. Colby, I wanted to roll back to a second. You were just kind of talking about, you know, the different things that make this possible. And so we talked about the, the scanning kind of being the upfront. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about the, the printing being kind of the, the, the main final step. Um, but I'll also mention there's a big, um, you know, chasm between those two things. And, and that's, let's say, the third part of this. So there's a whole um, algorithm as well as automation and, and software component to this. Um, so first of all is discovering that fit algorithm and uh, combination of fit performance, all the different parameters. Um, which is also, you know, that, that's been a, a, something that's taken a lot of time just to get to that, that, that right algorithm. And then it's all the software to, to automate that because uh, it's, it's just interesting when you get to, you know, again, kind of futuristic time kind of manufacturing, uh, mass customization. The, the problem isn't, you know, okay, that we need uh, tooling or something like that or have to wait for injection molding tooling. The problem is that we need a CAD file unique to every person. So now we get a scan of your foot and now we need another CAD file for you, in the past, it would have been we had one CAD file, one 3D file that was used for every single unit sold. Uh -huh. Now we need to scale that. So there's a whole scaling component in there where it's, first of all, getting the right adjustments made to your scan to make sure that the end product is going to be the right uh, fit, performance, yep. everything else. Yep. And a lot of automation and software in, in the middle to uh, basically make it possible to do this at scale. Okay. And so one question I'm sure people have then is, Let's say I go to my local fitter, I get my foot scanned, he sends in the scan to you guys, I get my first pair of shoes, now I want another pair of shoes. Do we have to scan again or using the same, it's once I'm in the database, you can make yep. me my pair of gravel shoes, right? Which would be a G2 generation, yep. right? Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the vision, you know, and, yep. and ultimately, yeah, not to get ahead of ourselves too much, but you can mm -hmm. imagine this tech platform, you know, once the scan is in, it can apply to all sorts of different on footwear right like right gravel shoes or mountain shoes enduro shoes yep. yeah so cool. uh, so yeah it's uh it's it's pretty cool and like i think robbie you're talking about before like you know custom footwear before from a in my opinion of like a developmental standpoint from doing like plaster casts like that there's i think there's there's much less opportunity to 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 put the precision and the and to, to really evolve that algorithm towards the end product. Whereas yeah. here, where it's digital, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's quite insane. Just the, mm -hmm. the, the knobs that you can turn and, and do them at sub-millimeter you know, accuracy and, and, and make it repeatable, right? Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the other part of this is like, like you said, you could have your second pair of shoes or your third pair of shoes and you know that it's, um, that algorithm is going to apply to each, each one of those and be right infinitely repeatable so right right so hard. how but a lot of manufacturers have had the ability to scan the bottom of the foot and make a footbed for example in the past right how is this different well i think the i mean the you know as we just talked about like it's just from a um you know it's it's an entirely different thing creating something for the bottom of the foot than creating a like a rigid monocoque for the whole foot that wraps around the foot including the dorsal aspect of the top of your foot yeah and components of the heel right yeah the whole like, thing I mean, right right all of it so okay that's kind of one percentage of it but yep. to do the entire thing is, is another challenge and then 
more, moreover, getting a rigid structure that uh, captures that energy and mm -hmm. transfers it through the structure eventually to the cleat to the pedal um, is that's the engineering component. Yeah, right? it's, it's yeah. a lot harder to do than it than it, than it right. probably seems. Right. Um, but that's that's where it, it kind of uh, is an exponentially harder problem to do it around your entire foot than it is to do on just one surface of the foot. For right, right, right. Okay, cool. And then like just, uh, that's the practical side. Philosophically, you know, we as we talked about, we believe we, you know you should be on flat ground, and then we build up from there. So, so yeah. needless to say, people probably figure this out at this point. I don't think we said it. At explicitly but this shoe's not going to have any toe spring or heel rise you're going to be yeah yeah based on a flat surface yeah 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 <laughs> you are in a flat platform right um but it's uh, you know the footbed component of it is also highly engineered too it's it's not just like uh you know it, there's a difference between standing on a floor and then having this precisely cupped yes uh perimeter to your footbed that 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 gives it just enough kind of lateral um containment which is what's in it's definitely a big part of the issue as well, which right. is like a huge thing. It lets lets your, uh, as we talked about, the the mets and the toes spread out under load, but laterally you're you're also transferring power not through uh, you know a, a soft footbed, but directly into the shell via the lateral cupping that exists like in the heel and midfoot, etc. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. If someone has a, a custom footbed that they you know have had for a long time and, and they can't you know, imagine life without it, then, then we can accommodate that. You so accommodate there, that. Yeah. there is yeah. a way, there is a way that if you want that preference that you can have that um, okay. baked into your shoe okay. uh, to work with that. Um, again, we, a lot of our testing in theory suggests that you don't need that, but if, if that's your preference, then that can be, can be done. Right. Too. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We don't want to totally shut the door to that world and, and just, you know, say it, but we, you know, the shoe is designed to, to kind of function this, this other way. So, okay. So that's awesome. Maybe you guys can just walk me through, like, how will it work? Let's say I'm a client and I, how do I, how do I go buy a lower one shoe? What's this process start to finish? Like, give me a rough approximation of what the timeline looks like and how I go about doing it. Yeah. So, um, I'll break it down into like where we are, where, where we're at, um, once we're fully operational past this kind of yep. pre-order phase. Yep. Uh, but let's just start a pre-order, right? So, um, so it's part of the beauty of, of these techs and the, specifically the, the iPhone scanning is that all of a sudden you kind of, um, you know, really open up the distribution globally. You could be in, um, you know, you, you could be in Malaysia or the Yukon. Or, Anywhere there's internet. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And basically. basically and order up a, a shoe. Right. Um, Which an iPhone 10. iPhone 10 or newer. <laughs> or newer. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, as uh, we, you know, obviously that's a little bit limiting, but I found most people um, like know someone in their family or have most of them aren't dinosaurs like me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you probably, you have a buddy probably that has. My one. wife's got a 10. So there you yeah, go. Most right. people have so one new, within their, their, I don't know which one she has, but anyway, first yes. degree. Yeah. yeah right. So, yeah. so, uh, yeah. so the, the whole scan to print uh, tech to introduce a new word to this whole thing is called morphic. And um, so there's a morphic app. And once you order the shoe, the lower shoe, you're, uh, you're given a link to download the morphic app. You get on the morphic app. Um, you scan your feet in two different, uh, three different looks. One is a bipedal where you're standing um, with both feet weighted, and then two looks, uh, each one for your right and one for your left, where you're fully weighted on that foot. Mm -hmm. So uh, you go through that scanning process. It works quite well. So the sorry the 
the bipedal standing with both weight versus one just tells us a little bit about how much your foot changes under load and how exactly. much it expands, right? Yep. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's the point. And so, okay. so yeah, and that you, know, you can imagine like the work that Rob's doing um, and and the software team, it's, it's, it's pretty wild in terms of like accommodating those two looks of your foot and integrating those into an algorithm that ultimately hmm. um, spit out the shoe. So, okay. So, but so, yeah, sorry, uh, Rob one. So if you had to put a number on it, like how much does someone's foot on average change from what you've seen in the data? If zero is unweighted or bipedal, we'll say not unweighted, but bipedal yeah. to single, is it? Three percent bigger? Is it five percent? Can you, yeah, I mean, do we, you have we, that number? We, I know the millimeters off the top of my head a bit more than the percentage. Okay. But, um, you know, we, we typically see four to eight millimeters uh, of movement on the uh, you know medial side of the foot in kind of the pronation zone. Mm -hmm. um, we see the the toes elongate by uh, two to four millimeters. Okay. Um, we see the the um, width of the foot change. So again, as you load it, um, we see two to three millimeters on each side of the foot. So the foot gets wider by uh, mm -hmm. typically uh, a handful of millimeters there. Um, the, the fat pads, of course, uh, enlarge. Um, so it's it's uh, very much it's very obvious when we look at the bipedal versus monopedal. We can definitely see the uh, the, the the theory kind of come into those scans on, on everybody we've looked at so far. Interesting. It's it's, it's pretty well. Okay. Now, now some people have different amounts of movement, so there's yeah, some, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's kind of relative to again yeah how tight your foot is versus how loose, and there's you know different foot types and that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. with those two stances, we can uh, get all the information we need uh, to basically, again, put the, the shell right where it needs to be in mm -hmm. the padding uh, to accommodate that. And are you seeing big differences left to right commonly? Surprisingly so, yeah. We, we expected mm -hmm. to see, you know, some people have difference right to left. Yeah. Um, honestly, on, on a pretty good percentage of the people we've, we've looked at so far, uh, there have been differences right to left, like like enough that it would affect the actual design of the shoe. Design, the shoe yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so basically we, we do, we scan both feet, each right and left is custom, obviously, or yeah. unique. Yeah. Um, and, and that's actually been surprisingly, um, hmm. different, more, more different than I would have expected. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just to interrupt, sorry, Stefan, we're no, getting no, a quick get little segue, but, um, but I, I find, you know, a recurring theme in my fit studio is that people talk to me all the time as though they expect themselves to be symmetrical and they're disappointed or surprised when they find out they're not. Yeah. That's a common, common part of my conversation. Like, I don't understand why, but I feel twisted when I ride my bike. You know, my pelvis feels twisted on the south. Like, yeah. Welcome to being a human, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or like, one leg doesn't work as well as the other when I pedal. It's not as smooth, or one side has better balance than the other. Yeah. I mean, you're a human. Like, you have more lung on one side. You've got a liver on one side, yeah. right? Everything we do, like, how do you interact with your environment on a daily basis? Do People you regularly... symmetry, but... Like, but it's not realistic. I mean, yeah, how do you yeah. open doors? Do you open doors with, do you alternate hands to open a door every time you open a door? No, of course not. Nobody does that. Right. So anyway, yeah. um, I think that's when we, like it's surprising, but at the same time, it's not when you think about it. It's so, like we do everything asymmetrically and we engage, you know, we carried our weight for however many decades we've been alive on our feet in that asymmetrical pattern. Most people have a weight shift left to right when yeah. they're standing statically, right? So why would our feet interact with the ground the same way we wouldn't expect them to if we think about it yeah. to and say nothing of like injuries i was gonna too. say injury is yeah. one of the other then, things we've seen yes absolutely yeah. or, or you know again we've, we've also seen a lot of feet that have uh bone spurs and other issues caused by bad shoes over the years so if you've ridden for years oh, yeah. and put up with it and now you've got these features that i mean we can pick up on these scans that that yeah. are pretty dramatic and, and need to be accounted for. So again, that's often a, one or the other foot mm -hmm. has, has something like that. So. It'd be really interesting if you guys get a collection of stories going from people who have really bad bunions or calluses or bone yeah. spurs, and they start wearing a shoe that accommodates that, but doesn't 
um, push on it anymore if it starts to go away. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that'll be interesting over time. Really We've at least heard that that it takes the pressure off that point, and they don't yeah. feel it anymore. So at yeah. least the the um, you know the pain is gone, or the you know yeah, but like, like you were saying yeah. with uh, Jesse's feet, you know I think feet uh, feet will change once absolutely you, yeah once you the body's always the changing yeah exactly. the body's always changing it's always adapting to its environment yeah to the load yeah to the stress yep. to what it feels or doesn't feel yeah. right yeah. Okay, anyway, sorry. So yep. uh, back to just the, yeah, the scanning. The process. So, so yeah, yeah, exactly. So so let's just say that the at-home version of it, it's about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, you okay. can do it, you know, in your- We're, we're getting your, down there. Yeah, exactly. We're, you know, so you we're, don't have to go to a fitter to have the scan. You can do it in your own either, house by yourself? Either one. So so we want to really give the option here um, that if you want to do it at home, uh, again, we're, we're getting that process, you know, we're refining that down. Uh, over time, so so it can be done at home. But if you prefer to go to a fitter, there's a lot more that can be done uh, with a fitter as well. There's a lot of um, customization that can be done on your unique print on your unique shoe, but a lot of that is opened up by working with a fitter. So we the, yeah, we want to democratize the whole thing, or in some way, like from a distribution standpoint, such that you can like if you are in um, yeah the Yukon or like I said or somewhere you know or. In, somewhere where there isn't a fitter anywhere near you, but yeah. you, you want to get a shoe, you, you certainly can do that. And it would be obviously better to, if you were that customer to like, you know, not just do it haphazardly, especially with the investment in the shoe, but like make sure you work on your stamps and, and right. cause garbage in garbage out. Right. But like when, uh, but when obviously the benefits of going to someone like you or as, is, is, is just that, that set of eyes in terms of, um, setting stance and position and neutrality and, and all of those other things, as well as like down the line, having additional toggles, uh, that, that can influence the end design of the shoe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So you mean maybe more subjective aspects? Like if I work with someone as a fit client, I might give you guys some input, like, Hey, this person's, uh, you know, I don't know, like a leg length discrepancy. Like, okay. For example. That's a good example. Yep. I was thinking more demands of the event. Like, Hey, they're targeting Kanza and longer, you know, we're talking eight, nine hours on the bike. Does that, that not really factor into the, to the, or maybe client history. Like they've got a history of neuroma, right? There's a big one. I'm, I'm expecting yeah. you guys are going to end up with a lot of misfit toys because so many people come to me. So I have clients who come to me, they're on the verge of quitting the sport because they can't find a shoe. That's yeah. not, putting them in severe discomfort, but they love cycling. This thing's going to play itself out, obviously, as like the, it widens out. But I, I think like the the standard fit algorithm should help a tremendous amount of people who have had any sort of fit issues, say nothing of the performance gains, right? Like, right. But, um, but for like once you kind of transfer from maybe more standard problems to medical, like that's probably where, you know, that, that kind of... Um, like fuzzy line exists between like manipulating the, the, the core algorithm to, to something else. To make some accommodations. Yeah. yeah. The, the more obvious things, uh, and like you say, we'll see how this plays out because there's a lot of things that opens up to that we've discussed, but the, the most immediate ones would be things if you use shims and wedges and yep. adjustments again to, to take a stock shoe and, and put all these band-aids onto it to, to adapt to the person's unique uh, structure, then we can integrate all of those parameters directly into the, into the print. Um, or for instance, the, the cleat placement again, cause we, most people should be probably basing it directly on the metatarsals, uh, you know, yep. halfway between the first and the fifth, but 
if there's a preference that's different, or like you say, depending on their writing style or their, or their history, mm -hmm. and, if, and if they say, okay, I want to move that so many millimeters forward or back, we can, of course, accommodate that, but we would prefer that to come from a fitter yeah. um, because we we can make those kind of adjustments, but we, we want to make sure that uh, they're vetted to, to make sure that it yeah. is correct for that, for that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think to that point, Rob, you brought up a really interesting concept I've been thinking about a lot. You know, uh, Steve Hogg has a patented method he uses to prescribe or recommend wedging for different riders. And that's based on a neurological response test to different wedging in different areas of the shoe. You know, whether it's the forefoot in the shoe wedges, the cleat wedges or the heel wedges. I honestly believe my instinct is, and this is unknown territory, that most of that wedging is an accommodation for what is really basically fundamentally a really poor design. Totally. Yeah. When you've got this curved carbon sole that has really nothing to do with what the foot's used to in, in space, we had to do all kinds of weird stuff to it to get totally. the foot to try to make power in a cohesive way. Yeah. When we clear that plate and give you just a solid surface, we're not jamming those toes up in dorsiflexion and doing all this artificial stuff to the arch tension. We're just letting the foot find its way to a powerful stance and then giving it just the right amount of control in the right way, I think that largely those accommodations will be unnecessary. That said, I do also think that if someone's been riding for six years, 12 years, 18 years in a shoe, in a conventional shoe, just like anything, there's going to be an adaptation. 100%, and yeah. even if you put someone in a optimal or better position, that doesn't mean they don't have to adapt to it. Right. right. So, yeah. And, and like, you know, you, you've ridden in the shoe now, or um, it, it's like, it's it, like, it's immediately apparent. Like it's, it's it really different. is. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's super positive and it's pretty easy to, and the cool thing is like, it's almost technique agnostic, not to go down another rabbit hole, but because you are transferring energy through this whole monocoque structure, you're, it's, it seems to be, at least in my experience and what others have said, it's like seems to adapt pretty well to, you know, whatever ingrained stuff you have going on. Mm -hmm. But but then, I, yeah, I assume for a lot of people, there'll also be this adaptation period, like you said. To, yeah. To yeah. fully sync with it. Yeah. yeah we, we've heard comments such as that, that it allow it, they might change their pedaling technique based on the shoe. Right. But it's 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 because it opens up some, some possibilities that weren't there before. So... Uh, I've asked out of my own curiosity in a negative way or positive way, and said, "No, no, no. Like, there's there's some some things that we can take advantage of now. Um, so, so some adaptations um, in in a good way, in a healthy way. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. That, that the door's been open to now. So. Nice. Okay. So, all right. All right. You've got your rider who's got a scan or her okay. scan. So they're they're doing it in the living room. You need a uh, or a fitter. You need a friend or a fitter. Mm -hmm. uh, to so actually, you. yeah, to rotate hold the around phone. you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You. Uh, yeah, you stand on a pedestal. Um, the only awkward thing about it is that you know we're we're using, uh, like you said, the iPhone 10 has come up again. Mm -hmm. So you're using the um, uh, the forward-facing camera, not the rear camera. So there is a, it's slightly awkward, but I think we have that the process down to something really good and really repeatable that gives super nice results. So uh -huh. it takes about, like Rob said, 15 minutes um, by the time you do the setup. But it's it's pretty painless, pretty fun. Kind of activity actually do with a friend uh you upload that scan and and then boom like for uh for this year 2021 we're gonna go into a pre-order phase that'll coincide probably with the launch of this podcast and and then we're aiming to start production in the the last few months of the year mm -hmm. so so there'll be uh and it'll be kind of first come first serve so you're 
the your um, your uh, position in the lineup will dictate your your uh, manufacturing position as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that'll that'll happen to clear out this pre-order, um, yeah. and then uh, and then once. Uh, once that's kind of cleared, and there's a whole Founders Edition package that that goes with that. But once uh, once that whole phase is cleared out, and the you know assuming capacity uh, meets demand, um, you know once you order and do your scans, you know in theory a shoe can be made in, in sort of half a day or so. Mm -hmm. So you know we um, you know I'm going to be super vague about this, but the probably you know we're probably a couple week. Uh, turnaround 10 days a couple weeks is, is sort of what we're from when you place your order and then it's made yep. and then it's got to be shipped to wherever you are and all yeah. that business yeah, yeah that's the yeah. eventual production yeah. that's right. the target yeah right cool so cool so, you know versus a traditional process that i think you know typically from what i've seen in the plaster world it's you know a couple months to... totally I mean, it seems like a lot of those customs you guys are pretty backed up too so good problem to have for them but yeah give yeah. Me a while. yeah and, and obviously you know we, we've seen the demand for that, that the custom you know carbon it's shoes huge. but but that's been one of the issues has been the, the plaster molding process and the right the shipping and, the and, and you know this actually kind of leads into another um subject of, of um, you know, sustainability where we talk about yep. uh, on-demand manufacturing. And so this is something that's obviously, you know, starting, you're starting to see it in a lot of different places. Um, and again, not only a trend, but also um, being made more viable based on manufacturing um, technologies and other uh, logistical technologies. So, so basically, you know, on the, on the green side of things, we, we don't have to ship uh, you know, massive amounts of raw material from, you know, one continent to another and then, right. you know, a massive container to, to receive warehousing, warehousing and, yeah. and inventory and all that. Right. Um, so we basically have our raw material on hand. We get your order. We print it exactly to your, to your, your order. Um, so, you know, there, there's definitely a, a you know, a more sustainable uh, com component to that. Mm -hmm. Not um, to mention the materials being just, recyclable. Just, yeah, themselves. so the materials themselves are recyclable. Uh, we're, we, we definitely have a focus on the, on the you know, sustainable aspect here. So the materials themselves are recyclable, um, as well as there's no waste. So a lot of manufacturing mm -hmm. processes, actually the, the most unsustainable part of most manufacturing is the amount of waste and scrap and all the stuff that's not used or yep. byproducts during the process. Yep. So if we can print you a shoe with our raw material stock, um, there's very little, I mean, if, if the only material used, used goes into the final, it product. goes into the yeah. final product that's right. shipped. Huh. Um, we're also working on, uh, some other sustainable initiatives where, uh, we can collect, uh, end of life. We can collect the shoe back. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and eventually we'll, we're, this isn't, uh, this is obviously, uh, takes extra, extra time to, to implement this, but eventually we'll be able to recollect your shoe, grind it up into new filament and, and make, make another shoe, shoe out, of it. out of it. So that's it actually cool. is closed a closed loop system. Yeah. Closed loop system. Wow. Yeah. So that's there's some cool. pretty, there's some pretty okay. interesting potential implications okay. on the, on the right. sustainability side. That's super cool. Yeah. So man, I mean, can you imagine a world where all manufacturing was done that way? Like the amount of waste we generate then between that and all we have to do is eliminate all these masks that are being thrown away and straws <laughs> on the side of the road. Right. <laughs> and in parking lots. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you know, yeah, it's, it's, I think as exciting to be a part of like this team and the, you know, and, and the, the product itself is, is also just kind of like just being at the bleeding edge of like what manufacturing, um, and sustainable manufacturing is, is like destined to become and hopefully pretty yeah. soon so yeah. across a lot of industries. And, and, and then we get to, you know, local production. So if we can produce things closer to the, the actual customer, the end customer. Um, so, you know, at, at, in, in, 
the beginning years we'll we'll do this you know in the U.S. here yeah um, and and have you know local distribution. Uh, eventually, we can have you know manufacturing uh, centers around the world, so we could be producing in the countries or continents that the customers are. Right. And again, trying to cut down on on yeah. uh, shipping and cut down on other By local emissions and yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah 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 okay cool. Do you guys um I don't know if you want to get into pricing at all here or do you want to save that for later? Da -da -da. Da -da. The punchline. Yeah yeah well, yeah um, yeah and that's um yeah it's nineteen hundred bucks. Okay. 1900 retail that'll be the deal and and let's play devil's advocate what if somebody gets a shoe and it's just not working how do we what's the process there like maybe they have some discomfort maybe they've got a point where it's like oh this didn't work what happened yeah um uh, well obviously you know we the first um well to start we you know we want to make sure everyone's stoked on the whole thing so um if it's not working for you return it and full refund so we we're starting out with uh 30 day um, guarantee on it so okay. go ride it and but uh before that i mean obviously we'd like to work with the customer and try to figure out like yep what's going on can we adapt it can we print another one can we you know change the fit or, or figure out you know, what what's what's at the root of that okay um but yeah but fully guaranteed and and yeah you know nice. i think we have a you know in our mind that's really kind of revolutionary product on both the performance and fit um perspective so you know like and it's expensive but you know it's um only ex expensive in our mind relative to uh shoes that exist right like mm. i mean custom shoes there is a precedent already for that price point but for sure you know we we feel like this is a, like a true performance weapon that's gonna change not only your experience on the bike in a positive way but you know it's gonna win stuff too so yeah um you know if you if you think about it just in terms of value for money versus a lot of other cycling components, frames and wheels, wheels and arrow and power stuff. meters and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it's, uh, you know, and, uh, performance claims forthcoming. We we want those to be uh, third party validated, but like the yeah. early stuff we're seeing is, is really super compelling. It's, it's quite crazy actually. And, and I think the, you know, the, the price, um, definitely, you know, in our mind just is justifiable based on performance mm. and, and obviously all the kind of fit and pleasure elements that we've been talking about. So. It's really interesting just the, the, the connection between the, 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 the human and, and the machine, the man and machine, the, 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 yeah. the, the human and the bicycle. It's just really an unexplored connection, really. I mean, there's been a lot of research and development and, and other things into other, you know, components in, in, in cycling. And uh, when you look at you know, what people are spending per gram or, uh, per watt on, on other uh, it's, aspects. It's, it's crazy it's sometimes. Crazy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we can see some, some significant performance gains, yeah. um, that, that are, mean, that are, that are meaningful for, for racing, for, for, for anybody out there who, who, who can feel that, um, you know, again, it's in, in context, uh, you know, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's, I think you have two major slices of the market that are really going to appeal to this product. One is the performance athlete who wants all in, they're spending the watts, the dollars on the watts or the grams or however, whatever they perceive to be, you know, less gram, less grams of drag, less grams of weight. They're they're all in on that performance component, and clearly the shoe is going to be a huge um, leap forward in that area. But also, I think you're going to end up with a lot of athletes who are just been yeah. struggling for years to find shoes that fit. And you add up, I mean, yeah, nineteen hundred dollars is a lot of shoes, is a is a lot of money. But you add up how many pairs of shoes people have bought over the years trying to solve problems like this. Yeah, totally. That's 
I, I know a lot of clients personally who spent well over north of 2K on pairs of shoes over the years. They've got them sitting in their garage because they're just yeah, yeah. can't find anything that works. You know, and that's even just regular riders who maybe have a bit of an odd foot or whatever. You talk about people who are dealing with neuroma or different other challenges, right? Um, hip problems, knee problems, hip replacements, etc. Uh, broken ankles, limits of dorsiflexion because of weird sporting accidents or life accidents, car accidents. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And when we see, uh, you know, people, we talk about the right left discrepancies and we see people buying two pairs of shoes because they right? need yeah. one size in one foot, another size for the other foot. Or we see, again, these bone spurs and other medical problems created by the shoes themselves. Yes. I mean, yeah. Then we talk about the cost of that. So. Yep. Yeah. The, on the value proposition, again, like, um, you know, the analogy I like to think of is, is like a race car, right? You can have like just the most amazing, like imagine a Formula One car or any race car, you have the F1 engine and then you have this most amazing chassis, brakes and wheels and tires. But in between those two is a transmission. And if there's the transmission is shitty, that power is not getting to the chassis. Right. And right. the car is, you know, relatively worthless. So right. It's the same thing here, and I think you know it's it's time to like relook at what the shoe actually is. It's not just fashion with a stiff sole. It's um, yes, it's like a critical performance component in the overall chain. So mm. um, I think you know, especially if uh, once numbers come out, and you know, to say nothing of like athlete longevity and and injuries and just sheer pl pleasure of having the body feel more connected to the bike. That sounds like more soft but i think it's super real it's like like it's fun you know mm -hmm. like your bike is is much more fun with when it's when you have a transmission like this so yeah um yeah when you, you put all that stuff together uh it, it makes makes a lot of sense yeah so the first generation will be road focused on road right and yep. we'll have three hole look or shimano cleat compatibility or correct speed play. or four hole speed play those will be the you choose yep. the flavors and then are there options for people to put like crazy rainbows and unicorns on these things or how's that, or is it only any color you want as long as it's black? What's yeah, the black aesthetic is, look like? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you'll see it, you know, the launch will coincide with this podcast and uh, the exoskeleton is black. Um, Cause it's made of carbon fiber. Yeah. You can't, you can't have, <laughs> which uh, is also black <laughs> neon, neon green carbon fiber. So, right. Right. Yeah. So that, so, you know, that's the core form factor is like the exoskeleton with this padding and liner. Uh, underneath it so it's it's uh, black exoskeleton white liner mm -hmm. and then as part of the founders edition you get you know a whole bunch of fun cool accessories but you know limited um, shoe covers too so we'll, ha we'll have a knit um, colorway and then a black and a white as well that'll ship with the founders that won't ship uh, for like subsequent orders past the, the pre-order stage so okay so uh, so yeah I mean the you know the it's the whole thing's like, yeah, it's obviously pretty radical, and the, the form factor, the look is also, you know, it doesn't look like a, <laughs> it doesn't look like a normal shoe, the, the normal cycling shoe. Nope. So, nope. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's that's the deal. It was designed to perform first. Yeah, you can figure out the rainbow colors later. But, right? uh, yeah. but yeah, like you know, extra watts is is pretty sexy, and so is foot comfort. So right, yeah, agreed. No, yeah, people... we're, we're, we're doing, sorry, I was just going to say like performance first for sure. Um, and, and a lot of the optimization now is, is going into just kind of optimizing down everything, kind of streamlining, um, you know, looks matter to some degree. So we, we want to get it um, to, to 
be as appealing as possible as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the color conversation is, is one where for sure, uh, we'll take the Ford philosophy for now. Yeah. And uh, that's easy to, you know, we have different covers later on uh, to, to go with. Yeah. Cool. That sounds awesome. Um, well, thank you guys so much for taking time to come in and chat with me about this today and let everyone know what the shoe project's all about. I'm super excited to get riding these more. And, you know, as of this time, we're here, like I said, we're in May. So we're just uh, going to be filming some cool content for the website this week and yeah. dialing in some stuff in that respect, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Colby, like big thanks to you, man, for being a part of this thing. You know, yeah. it's like we're sort of came from this as relative outsiders uh, from cycling. Like, you know, we came from skiing and snow sports, like we said. So mm -hmm. uh, I just a like quick little backstory before we close yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, we connected with a fitter in Salt Lake, a guy named John Higgins, who said, uh, you know, after uh, hanging out with him a bunch, he's like, hey, you got to check out this Colby guy. He's got this podcast. And, and then I... He rants about shoes all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so turned on a few hours of, of you ranting on shoes. And I'm like, wait, we need this guy. He, he needs to be a part of this for yeah. sure. So Cool. Yeah, so like super appreciative of your... Oh, man. Yeah. I'm honored. It's... Uh, I got all three contact points dialed now between... SP saddles, which are my, everybody's heard me say this before, but in my opinion, yeah. they're the best product on the market. Yeah. And I have one now based on your. Yeah. Product. Nice. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, I worked with Coefficient and with Rick Sutton at uh, the Wave Bar to design their RR bar, which is, I think, the best bar on the market. It's got amazing upsweep and backsweep. It's super dialed. So that's my first two contact points. Yeah. And those have been enormous steps forward. Like we're, we're making progress in the world of bike fit, we're taking it out of 1904. Next, all we need is road brake levers to be, you know, long enough so that you can actually grab them with your index fingers without having to torque your wrist to some ridiculous angle to get to your brakes. Somebody's Water listening drops. out there. Somebody's, Hello. Somebody's so, listening. So um, that's the next one. But the last major contact point is by, and by far the most challenging and intricate, as you guys have explained today, is shoes. I mean, this is not a trivial project you're undertaking, and I'm so excited to see people ride it. We've got some world tour riders who are going to be rocking these things. We've got some triathletes that are in negotiations. We've got some yeah. top end ladies that are going to be racing them as well. Like to be on the lookout for the, the lore one ambassadors out smashing races near you. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be a fun journey. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks guys. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having us. Right. Uh, check out the shoes and uh, Stefan, if you just tell us the website so everybody knows where to go. Yeah, it's uh, lore.cc and uh, at lore cycle on Instagram. Awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you. Okay. All right. Sweet. Thanks for listening. I'm really glad you're here. I believe now I will have a much better rhythm to, to introduce and release many more regular episodes of cycling in alignment with colby pierce i appreciate your patience while i dealt with all these exciting projects and onward attention space monkeys public service announcement really technically it's a disclaimer you already know this but i'm going to remind you that i'm not a lawyer and i'm not a doctor so don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.